0: DOCM OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Monday, February the 27th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams is back in the producer's chair this morning. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone. Give us a shout, get in the queue, and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211 or elsewhere it's toll-free long-distance 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. Well, you don't need me to tell you, the cold snap continues and severe weather warnings remain in place for much of the island. Apparently out in Central and certainly up in Labrador, extremely chilly. Lost the power Saturday night for a little while. And it's one of those weird ones. So it was only my side or our side of the street without power across the street and across the park behind the house. Everyone lit up, but not so much for us. Of course, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro talking about when we use the heavy power draining stuff whether it be hot water appliances what have you but i don't know how much people play along with that anyway you know what makes a great saturday night (laughs) for me maybe i'm strange is when both mercer and newhook score and they did exactly that on this Saturday night past. So Mercer is on an absolute tear, as you all know. Six straight games with a goal. And over those six games, he's got eight goals during that stretch. He set a New Jersey Devil record for a consecutive games played to start your career at 141, breaking Scott Gomez's record. Gomez went on to play over 1,000 games in the National Hockey League. So Mercer is absolutely tearing it up. And Alex scored. Alex Luke scored on Saturday night as well for his 13th. That was Mercer's 19th. In addition to that... Abby Newhook down at Boston College. She had a couple of points over the weekend to lead her BC Eagles off to the semifinals in the Hockey East playdowns. I think they're taking on Northeast or Northwestern uh, next in the semis. Abby was also named the third team All Star for Hockey East. So a great weekend for some of our best and brightest. On the Blades. And Zach Dean, you know Zach Dean. He's been playing in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League for the Gatineau Olympique. Before he got a chance to even play with the team that drafted him in the National Hockey League, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, he was 30th overall in the 2021 draft. They dealt him off to St. Louis. So now he's the St. Louis Blues. So good luck to Zach when he cracks the big league lineup. Oh, I want to have a quick shout-out to a St. John's native, Connor Shortle. He's also playing in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, playing for the Cape Breton Screaming Eagles. For everyone who ever played a bit of hockey or any other sport, you want to be part of that so-called leadership group. And in hockey, of course, it feels really cool to get a letter on your sweater. It's a C for the captain or an A for the assistant captains. And Connor was given an A over the weekend, so that's pretty cool stuff for him. And congratulations. Kick off week two at the Canada Winter Games. Of course, we welcome your call as a supporter of a mom or dad, nan or pop, of someone who's off, whether it be competed in week number one, are on their way to Prince Edward Island to compete in week number two. And this is an interesting one. The first Newfoundlander and Labradorian uh, put into the Canadian Motorsports Hall of Fame happened over the weekend. Robert Canoe. Robert Canoe, of course, the man behind Target Newfoundland. He was inducted into the Canadian Motorsports Hall of Fame over the weekend. Congratulations to you, Bob. All right, so we just mentioned the cold snap. And over this past weekend, Choices of Youth hosted their annual Coldest Night of the Year. So it's a fundraiser, you know, to bring some attention to awareness and to raise money for youth dealing with homelessness. They serve between 1,000 and 1,300 youth each and every year who are either on the verge of or are homeless and experiencing a variety of other problems. Choices has a bunch of programs in place. So with the wind chill at around minus 23, and of course, people weren't outside for the entire night. And they're all bundled up as we all need to be these days. But with this cold weather, it's worth putting back out there that there are a ton of people who are absolutely homeless and or the hidden homeless. They're just surfing couches or relying on the generosity of maybe a sibling or a buddy or what have you. But the coldest night of the year, maybe we should check in with uh, the the folks on the choices to see how it went. And we uh, power up our house, many of us, hydro. So, the much-ballyhooed meeting between Quebec Premier Francois Legault and Premier Andrew Fury took place, of course, last Friday. It only lasted a couple of hours. And not surprisingly, not a whole lot of detail coming from. The comments coming from both Premiers were, I think, quasi-interesting. We're not 100% sure what was even being discussed, nor do we know how to accurately label what was going on. Discussions, negotiations, who knows what it is. And I don't think we can get bogged down in that distinction without a difference or difference without a distinction. <laughs> Which way does it go? Distinction without a difference? Yeah. Okay. So they come out and they agreed on a couple of things, that the 1969 contract is a bad deal. Now, they both put it in different terms, but that's not a news flash to any of us. Then, of course, last week there was references to the fact that Hydro-Quebec had profits of about $4.6 billion last year, a third of which comes from the fact that they buy for a pittance power from the upper Churchill and, of course, sell it on the market for some $0.8.2 on the average. Okay. So I guess the agreement was simply to continue discussions. The concept of redress for the contract over the years since it's been in place is a bit of a strange one. PC leader, of course, the leader of the official opposition, David Brazel, says there has to be some attention given to and possible compensation coming for for the fact that Quebec has brought in revenues to the tune of almost $30 billion. Here, less than $3 billion. The... I mean, that sounds good, but is there any reality attached to it? I mean, look no further than the fact that we were quite litigious with this contract. We went to court repeatedly, all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, to try to see if there's some good faith reopening of the contract. Of course, Hydro-Quebec and the province of Quebec pushed back constantly every single time and won every single time. So was there an appetite for Quebec to do anything about the past. we can't rewrite the history. So I guess it could be conversations maybe about opening up the next 18 years of the contract. But I don't really know what to say beyond the fact that they just are going to continue to discuss it. But curiously, you know, Legault was talking about Gull Island all the time prior to coming to the province. No real reference to what may have been discussed with that potential for 2,225 megawatts on the Churchill River, the Grand River. I've also got a bunch of emails. And this is where I think we have this bitter resentment of the province of Quebec is so many people wrote me to say we shouldn't even be engaged in conversation with Quebec. You know, they're bad actors, they can't be trusted, we're going to get hoodwinked again or whatever the case may be. The unfortunate reality is if we're talking about the upper Churchill, there is only one party to talk to and that's Quebec. Whether it be at the premier's level or executives at Hydro-Quebec, but the meeting came and went just with an agreement to continue talking about it after these high-level talks. Okay, fair enough. And last week, late last week, the province came out with this fiscal framework regarding wind to hydrogen. All right, so... It's good that, you know, we're getting some answers to what's in it for us. So whether it be the amount of money to uh, lease Crown land, and of course there's some 1.7 million hectares of Crown land that are involved in the 31 bids coming from energy companies in the wind regime. And again, the only pushback I've heard to any of it is regarding World Energy GH2, led by John Risley, of course. No real mention from anybody in my email inbox, which is pretty active, about the big proposal out in Central from the exploits group. But inside this fiscal framework, every time I turn my head and I try to read newspapers from around the world, and lots of talk about green hydrogen. Now, you know, whether or not there's a massive market, that's kind of between the proponents and their end user, whatever power purchase agreement that they can sign. And of course, in this case, the one formal arrangement, the one memorandum of understanding, is between World Energy, Stephenville, and Germany. OK. So when it gets down to what's in it for us, of course, jobs, of course, is a big deal. In Central, they're talking about 2,000 jobs during construction phase and then 500 permanent jobs thereafter. And then for the rest of the province who is not going to be intimately or directly involved in these projects, it will come in the form of royalty. And that's going to happen with a water royalty payment. So the example given by Minister Andrew Parsons was on a 1,000-megawatt project, during the course of 30 years with the framework put forward that would bring some $3.5 billion to the province. And this is not to be all in or all out on hydrogen or wind. It's just to talk about what we know and to ask questions about what we don't know. The trick with the water royalty is that it doesn't kick in until the proponent, the company, recovers their capital cost. That's where many people have a question or concern. If you read a variety of opinion pieces, and coming from academia, and people who are energy consultants or working in the industry, they talk about just the simple cost of hydrogen, green hydrogen, and it's going to be apparently quite high. Now, with the advent in technology, new innovative solutions coming, regardless of the form of energy, increases in battery storage, and more and more solar, you know the deal. So the problem with the way the water royalty is constructed at this point is, what if, The end market for the green hydrogen becomes less attractive, given cheaper options, closer to home. From Stephenville to Germany, some 3,000 nautical miles. So there are going to be all sort of logistical concerns, which is not necessarily a problem for me and you. It's more a problem for the people who are going to spend money to build these turbines, ammonia plants, and hydrogen plants, and then the shipping. So seven days travel from Stephenville to Germany, the end market, even if we're just talking about World Energy GH2. So... The problem is, if all of a sudden the market dries up, the appetite dries up, we could have gone quite a long stretch of time with the companies, you know, they can have the wind, but water is such a precious resource that what happens if their markets dry up before we get to collect these water royalties? Because in the best case scenario, it seems very attractive. 30 years, $3.5 billion coming in, we're not taking any necessary financial risk as a province, It is indeed an environmental concern, and access to water will always be a concern. But it's the unknowns regarding green hydrogen and the cost of it for the end user. And the way we've constructed this particular fiscal framework, I think, is a good conversation that we can and should be having if you are so inclined. All right, let's move into health. Can't avoid health care. So a bunch of announcements in the recent past, you know, it was the add nowhere announcement about a replacement for St. Clair's Mercy Hospital, and then the form of a private-public partnership, the 3P, and then it's the construction of long-term care facilities, and then last week talked about a new cardiovascular and stroke institute in St. John's. Dr. Sean Connors, who's the clinical chief of cardiac care, critical care for Eastern Health, is chuffed, quite pleased. So he says it's going to go a long way to offering better and world-class treatment. All right. That all sounds great. And then you add in the conversations about uh, obstetrics units will remain in Gander at the James Payton Memorial Hospital. These all feel and sound great. You know, part of healthcare is indeed bricks and mortar. But the announcements come with the looming question of that's great to build it, but how are we going to staff it? You know, staffing concerns have long been a problem for the obstetrics unit in Gander. And a new cardiac institute, that's okay, but we seem like we are just barely have what we need in the delivery of cardiac care here in the province and or stroke care in the province. So how do we staff these places up? You know, you hear from Yvette Coffey at the Registered Nurses Union, and there's now 750 RN vacancies? You know, it was 600 not that long ago. So an additional 150, we all have questions. Are these based on retirements or people moving from permanent to casual or they've now become a travel nurse or they left the province? We don't know. So the the consequence of the staffing shortage regarding nurses is really quite clear, whether it be in emergency rooms. And yes, the fact that because of those staffing shortages, there's some 200 empty long-term care beds, 200 empty long-term care beds. So those people are very likely in a hospital, taking up a hospital bed. So the anxiety, the frustration, and the financial cost of that reality is quite dear. So, and then of course the Province Entertaining Review of Long Term and Personal Care Homes, those stories are important to share, so please consider that as well. And a bit of good news. You know there are opportunities here in this province. Sometimes I feel like I might be coming across with some cockeyed optimism, but we do have major league opportunities in front of us. The trick is whether or not we can seize them and maximize them. One such area that I think gets some attention sometimes is, of course, the tech sector. Last week was the biggest program investment announcement from the tech sector as an umbrella industry. So tech says that some $27 million will be invested to training and upskilling Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. There are major opportunities for growth, major opportunities for startup companies, and consequently, huge opportunities for people for employment and good paying jobs and a real bright future for that sector. So, maybe we can check in with the folks at TechConnell to help break down exactly how that money is going to be invested or spent. And on that front, some of the training for people interested in that business will come from Memorial University. So, the Faculty Association and their members ratified the new agreement. They didn't tell us what percentage voted for it, but they say strongly in favor for. So, the strike lasted almost two weeks. And then, of course, we're just coming off of what, whether it be winter break or reading week or whatever you want to call it. Last week, where the university students were not on campus, no classes were taking place. You wonder what it means for the remaining uh, coursework. So, you know, reading week, I'm not so sure whether or not we should have just gone back to class. Easy enough for me to say I'm not a student or a faculty member or a staff at month. But you do wonder about how they catch up. You know, especially if you're a relatively new university student, getting used to the pace of play and the lack of, you know, the type of relationship you might have had with your teacher versus your instructor or professor so there's going to be some fast and furious delivery of the coursework so regardless of any relationship you might have with mon and or that story let's bring it on and i'm going to ask this one more time we're stella so the portuguese water dog which has done such great work mental health supports uh, throughout a variety of uh, fronts here in the province we've now heard from rnc patrick roach about the fact that Stella's is still working but the primary focus is now for the rank and file of the rnc no real better understanding as to why the way Stella was being utilized and her handler Krista Fagan, as to you know their presence in the community versus what's going on now. So we didn't really glean a lot from uh, Mr. Uh, pardon me Chief Roach's statement, you know, saying that this was predictable that there'd be a transition, but still a lack of understanding whether it be the equine program and or the work Stella and Krista Fagan were doing. Things have changed very very quickly. And then talking about a review of private donors, and in this case, it's Jim Hines. You know, we had Jim on the show last week to talk about some certain things he's done. And since 2015, he's made donations to the tune of about 342 thousand dollars to initiatives at the RNC. But still, a lot of things that I don't really quite understand as to what's gone on over there. And you're more than welcome to join because the mental health conversation is, of course. Absolutely massive. I was going to talk about the largest ever trial regarding a four day work week. Monday always feels like a good day to talk about that concept. Maybe we'll get to it after the break. But of course, we'd be remiss to not talk about the passing of the great Gordon Pinsent. Now, you know, we throw around the word icon a lot, probably too much, but it absolutely applies to the life and times and contributions of Gordon Pinsent. I don't pretend to have known the man, and he probably couldn't pick me out of a lineup, but I did meet him and interviewed him. Myself and Chrissy Holmes interviewed him when we were both hosting Out of the Fog. And you know, it's one of those things where someone who's larger than life walks into the studio, and you always get that little bit of fanboy, you go, ooh, my God, it's Gordon Pinsent!" And he walks her up to and he says, hi, I'm Gord, as if, yeah, I know that you're Gordon Benson. So. You know, lots of great tributes pouring in and references to him being a Renaissance man, which he absolutely was. The Grand Falls native was not only larger than life, but he was one of us, and he was a reflection of us. And he never lost sight of that. So whether it be the comments about the twinkle in his eye and maybe the little bit of mischievous nature that kind of emanated from Mr. Pinson, he was an absolute gem. So in the world of being a renaissance man, as a writer, producer, director, actor, painter, military veteran, and one of my favorites, he was a dance instructor. So when he was cutting his teeth in Winnipeg, he took a job at the Arthur Murray Dance Studio as a dance instructor. So he's got some 150 credits to his name. He never lost sight of who he was, where he's from, and the contributions as a trailblazer to show up-and-coming actors or participants in the entertainment industry that it was possible, not only possible for you to make your way into the bright lights but also possible to bring the work home. And as the mentor that he was for so many, that's exactly what happened. We punched way above our weight in show business and Gordon Pinsent led the way. So he was a gem of a man. If you want to share a story, and there's so many terrific stories out there about Gordon Pinsent, and yes, to hear him uh, introduce himself, tongue-in-cheek, as Canadian icon Gordon Pinsent, brilliant. His achievements as a dramatic actor are quite obvious, but the comedic timing was impeccable. He could do it all, and worked right up into 2021, so... It is a loss. And like I heard Mark Critch say, of course, it was a friend of Gordon Pinson's. You know, even at 92, it still came across as a bit of a shock. I mean, talk about a life well lived. And what he has meant to the province and the country is truly remarkable. So our condolences to his family and all his friends, of which he had many, around here. And so if you want to share a Gordon Pinson story, we're absolutely more than pleased to take that on here today because it'll bring a smile to some of the faces who are a little bit shocked and are absolutely saddened by the loss of one of the most prolific, hardworking, kind, generous Canadians and Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, the absolute legend that is Gordon Pinsent, Boy, oh boy. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlinefeocm.com. When we come back, let's kick off the week with a great show. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's begin this morning on the top of the board on line number one. Good morning, Mike. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you this morning, Paul? I'm doing okay. Uh, Mike, thanks for asking. How about you? I'm doing fine, indeedy. And I'd
1: like to say a special hello to all your listeners on VLCM.
0: Appreciate that. I'm sure they say uh, good morning as well. What's on your mind, Mike?
1: Uh, I want to offer a a tribute to uh, Gordon Vincent based on a personal
0: experience
1: from him with him in Toronto.
0: Let's hear about it.
1: All right. Uh, Twenty-two years ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer, and uh, there was nothing they could do for her here in uh, in Saint John's. So they sent her to Sunnybrook Hospital in uh, Toronto, where she was a patient from May till november where she died and during all that time in toronto i was at a restaurant on young street one day having a meal and then uh while i was sat to the table eating in the far corner off by himself there was this figure of a man eating his meal and i looked and i said jesus i said that looks like gordon pinson i said it can't be and uh, he uh, I never bothered to go over or anything. I just stayed where I was told. And he finished eating before I, before me, he came over and he had to squeeze in past my table to exit the restaurant. And when he passed by, I said to him, I said, "J, I said, I said, you look like Gordon Princeton. Did everybody tell you that you were looking like for Gordon Princeton?" He turned around and he said, "Yes, boy because that's who I am." So it was. And uh, he said, what, what part of the rock are you from? So I told him I was uh, living in the ghouls and that. And uh, he sat down for a minute, started talking. Uh, I, uh, the conversation led to why I was in Toronto with my wife uh, in, uh, for se- uh, severe cancer uh, 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 operation. So he asked where she was. Uh, I told him that it was in Sunnybrook Hospital and very shortly afterwards, that man took the time to come down and visit her. So that was certainly certainly shows. He was a down-to-earth celebrity.
0: It, it's a great story because, you know, how many... You know, people often say, you know, never, never meet your heroes. But sometimes they turn out to be exactly like the story that you're talking about with, with Gordon Pinson. To take it upon himself and his own free time to visit your wife is a, a wonderful story.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely, indeed. And uh, I, I'd like to offer my condolences to everybody in his family. He was such a great man and great actor. And uh, he was attributed tribute Newfoundland.
0: 100% he was all of that And I'm really pleased that you shared that story Because we're going to hear some funny stories Maybe very likely about Gordon Pinson But some of these really personal ones Really drive home the person that he was The kind of man he was So thanks a lot for making time for the show this morning Mike
1: You're welcome And I'd also like to throw a, a, a tribute To uh, Mercer He's doing Newfoundland proud With his, uh, the, the success he's having With his hockey
0: Oh, Dawson, yeah, absolutely. I I love watching him play. He's become an important part of that team. He really is. He's he's a terrific skater. He wins a lot of races to that puck, and I I really appreciate the kind of game he plays. And he's reliable, right? He's there every night. Hasn't missed a game yet. He's noted 141 games, I'm telling you. Yeah, it's excellent. Great stuff. Yeah. Okay, thanks for your time. Have a good day. You too. All the best. Bye bye. Yes, bye. You know, I mean, sometimes we treat people of that stature as if they're, I don't really know the right way to put it, but that they're unapproachable and they, of course, are self-absorbed or whatever people associate with some of the, the big, big stars. And Gordon Pinsent was a big, big star. So just imagine, meets a fellow Newfoundlander or Labradorian, hears of his personal story and his struggles and his wife struggles and goes to visit her. I mean, that's just terrific stuff. Let's go. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to the executive director of the Grace Sparks House out in Marystown. That's Lisa Slaney. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air.
2: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
0: Excellent. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. So I read this story, and, you know, I spoke with the mayor in Marystown there some while back when we found out that the department was closing the Canning Bridge. And, you know, it's hard to really understand, unless you live in the area, just what that means. So a five- or six-minute drive is now more like a 30-minute drive, if I understand the story correctly. But the work that you do and the people that you serve at Gary Sparks House, tell us what the impact of simply closing a bridge has for your patrons or clients.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, for us, uh, Patty, our shelter is located on the south side of Marystown. So um, I guess all the amenities and services and, and you know, health services, everything is located on the north side. So the quickest way, of course, for us was always to access the Cannings Bridge, which, you know, with recent um, gas increases and that over, you know, this past uh, past year and um You know, took a a $7 taxi ride to $14, and now uh, we have to access services, the women need to access services um, through the Creston Causeway, which has turned now into about a $40 or $45 taxi ride. So, as you can imagine, um, what that does to a not-for-profit and trying to stay within, you know, a budget that, uh, you know, is, is tight now as it is. And, um, you know, we still have a month left in this fiscal year. And from what I'm hearing, you know, it's going to be at least three years um, before, um, you know, the bridge is going to be replaced or it's going to be accessible by uh, for traffic and that. So... You know it's it's devastating for us it's it's certainly not an inconvenience it's a devastation because again we have to you know um try to provide services for women and you know if they're trying to go to eastern health to access mental health services or a family doctor or a lawyer or you know anything all of the amenities um that the women we serve uh require are on the north side so it's it's uh, having such an impact on us i'm, I'm really not sure where it's going to end and you know how how we're going to get through this um you know without further financial support or you know i've said it before i guess if there's any car dealerships listening and they want to donate us a vehicle we'd certainly take one um so you know we we met with our government uh, funders on um Tuesday and they're aware of the situation and very supportive and we're going to you know stay in in close touch in terms of you know making sure we don't have to choose between you know buying groceries and and providing you know medical transportation
0: so transportation costs have been a real struggle for everybody who needs it and of course that would be everyone so for a not-for-profit are you actually able to provide that transportation service or is it becoming legitimately impossible
2: it's becoming impossible Yeah, like uh, last month alone I think you know our, our taxi costs were uh, about two thousand dollars so you know now add on you know uh, an extra well I mean we're triple really you can look at it almost as a triple uh, cost so you know what we three taxis before now was only one taxi kind of thing and you know, uh, I know, I know the town and, and um, at the public meeting um, a few weeks ago um, discussed about maybe, you know, we could probably get a bus or something like that. But, you know, the women and children we serve, um, you know, for safety reasons and confidentiality, I mean, they, they can't be on a public bus. I mean, they, they need, um, you know... Uh, further services which would provide uh, you know um, safety and of course um, there are the you know the confidential um, services that we provide so you know, for us right now, it's uh, it's a struggle, and it's going to continue to be a struggle. And if we have to go uh, three more years uh, paying taxes at this cost, I mean, there's, there's no way that we can expect to stay within budget. There's no way we can expect government to, you know, to keep up with that as well. Because, you know, like government not only has an increase, you know, say for us, and and we're going looking, well, then, you know what? And I'm sure the Department of Transportation and the school boards and all that because it's an increase for everyone. You know, our mayor spoke to it as a domino effect, and it certainly is. And I can't speak, you know, to, uh, to the municipality or the government's expenses when it comes to this. I can only speak to, you know, our services. And I know that um, because, you know, we're an emergency service, no different than, you know, an ambulance, no, no different than a fire department. And, uh, you know, women being able to access us, um, you know, again, because we pay transportation to us as well as to services, You know, you you talk about a taxi ride from, you know, down over the road, you know, from Terenceville somewhere is is expensive. But, you know, add on those those gas increases and the extra kilometres. Now, I mean, there's no way we're going to be able to sustain uh, without uh, some type of help. So, you know, we're looking at options, looking at different funding options, seeing if there's some way that we can, you know, purchase a vehicle or or something you know other shelters do uh do provide transportation their own you know their own uh vehicles for women to get uh to certain services so uh, you know we've never felt the need to do that because it was always such a short uh distance proximity for us but now i mean it's it's probably our only option
0: The winter months, it might not be conducive for especially small children or what have you, having to take the walk across because the bridge does remain open to pedestrians. But when the weather eases and warms up a little bit, is that an option for your clients?
2: No, no, not at all. I mean, we're we're talking from the shelter to access the bridge. You're probably talking about, I don't know, maybe a 20-minute walk, 15, 20-minute walk. And on top of that, again, um, you know, safety and confidentiality come up because, um, you know, we're in a small town, even though, I mean, Marystown is the heart of the peninsula. You're still in a small town where if someone don't know you, they know someone who knows you. And, um, you know, again, we provide a confidential service. So, you know, uh, safety is paramount and uh, walking just isn't something, you know, that... um, that that's an option for, uh, you know, for, for women and children.
0: Fair enough. And for people that don't know, I mean, Grace Sparks House is a refuge for women and children escaping family violence. You know, shelters across the board, emergency shelters, regardless of what we're talking about, the Gathering Place, Iris Kirby House and others, at capacity. How about Grace Sparks?
2: Um, we are, I think we're about at uh, 50% right now. Um, so, you know... Um, There's times when we are at capacity, especially during the COVID times. Uh, COVID took, you know, a big, big... uh, you know, big strain on and put a big strain on our services and, and our funding as well. And uh, because we had to, you know, use hotels and things like that for uh, because we couldn't double women up in rooms, and you know, some women needed to isolate and things like that. So we're, you know, it, it just seems we're we were coming out of a difficult time, and now it seems that we're just gone right back into that again. So now instead of you know that extra expense. Um, with COVID for, say, hotel rooms. Now we're going into, you know, transportation. So it doesn't seem like we're going to catch a break. And we also offer the services of supportive housing. So our supportive housing complex is on the north side of Marystown. So now for our staff to go over and what we did on a daily basis for our staff to leave the shelter on the south side and go to the north side and provide services to the women and children at Macaulay Place, that's our supportive housing unit. Um, Now, I mean, that's the, you know, the, the extra 30 kilometers is there as well. So it's, uh, you know, we've we've had to limit now. We're going to try and, you know, um, we had a team meeting and we're going to try and just do it probably two times a week to cut down, you know, on the expenses for staff travel and things like that. So, you know, we're having to, to really analyze every piece of work that we're doing to ensure that we're still able to provide, you know, the service that the women and children deserve here.
0: You know, it's remarkable. Sometimes the story sounds just so fundamental. Well, a bridge closed, and there's another bridge down the road, and you can still go around the long way. But the real-life implications are exactly that. So it's always helpful when we have someone like you bring your voice, you know, to just elaborating on the fact that it's simply not just you can't drive across the bridge. Here's what it means in reality for the people that you serve. Uh, Lisa, would you like to say anything else this morning while we have you?
2: No, that's fine. I appreciate uh, your time and and helping us, uh, you know, put this message out there for a greater understanding.
0: I appreciate you making time and good luck with the important work you do.
2: Thank you, too. Have a good day.
0: You too. Bye-bye. That's Lisa Slaney. She's the uh, Executive Director at Grace Sparks House in Marystown. Uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back to the topic, well, that's up to you. Don't go away.
3: Weekdays on VOCM, it's open line
4: with your host Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
0: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Ron, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. You?
5: Good, thanks. My name is Ron. I'm calling to uh, for a big thank you to all the folks in the Gannet Bay area that have been helping us uh, to raise funds for. Uh, the Wings Point Pentecostal Tabernacle that was burnt, uh, 16th of March, 2022.
0: And so, what's gone on since the church burnt down?
5: Yes, the church burnt down on the, the 16th of March, of 2022, and we've been. Uh, this is our first fundraiser, which was last night. We had an awesome turnout, and I just want to put a bouquet, of saying thanks to everyone that came out, and just uh, trying to support our cause.
0: What type of fundraiser did you do? What was on the go? Uh,
5: uh, inspirational, actually. It's the um, Gospel Sing Along. Okay. So from, from Daytona, Baytona, to Main Point, uh, Davisville, in that area, there's holiday areas, which is included of Horwood, Stoneville, um, Rogers Cove, Victoria Cove, Wings Point, Clark's Head, George's Point, Harris's Point. And Main Point Davisville. That's pretty water area that was taken in last night to the singers, some of the singers, you know.
0: How many people showed up?
5: I'd say some around uh, 200. I, I'm I'm guessing, uh, Patty. I'm not 100% sure of that. I'm I'm. Uh, we have an overflow there. We're, we're at this present time. We're using the hanging can uh, church in Wings Point. Okay. And they're so good to us there. So that's uh, where so we held. Uh, that's what we've been on our services to at this time due to the loss of our building,
0: of course. What does it look like uh, uh, cost to the considerations to rebuild? How much?
5: Uh, I'm, 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 I'm guessing, Patty, but I'm probably $750,000, probably somewhere mm. in that area. I'm not 100% sure of that, but just a ballpark figure.
0: And did you have insurance in place to cover or some? Yeah,
5: well, we had insurance but I'm sorry to say it won't well cover the cost due to the cost of materials this day at the game, you know? Right. So we're trying to do all we can to try to start our building hopefully this spring if all goes well, you know?
0: What are you doing for the next upcoming fundraiser? Do you have one planned?
5: No, uh, Not at this present time, no. We're we sort of planning it by here and seeing how things go, you know? And, and uh, as a as a member of our assembly, of course, myself. Just uh, take them one day at a time, I guess, the best way of praying like that, you know?
0: Well, I'm glad this initial fundraising effort was a success, and I appreciate the time Ron. Good luck with the continued efforts.
5: Thanks, Paddy. Keep up the
0: good work. Thank you. Take good care of yourself. God bless you. Bye-bye. And uh, speaking of uh, churches, of course, we all know the stories about the churches being sold, but apparently one of the churches, I think uh, Sacred Heart maybe, had some pretty important and elaborate works by artist Gerald Squires. And they're being auctioned off at this moment in time. And I think most of it is about uh, a reflection of the stations of the cross. One piece is eight by 14 feet. And so it's just curious that that ended up that way. Anyway, let's keep going here on line number two. Florence, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hi.
6: I um, I was talking to Greg Friday. He said to that you would get back to me today about uh, seniors dental plan, uh, you know, free because I could sure use it.
0: What's uh, happening? Uh,
6: well, no, I just wonder. If I, I didn't get the information you told me about two weeks ago. You said to call you back if I if you if I don't get. The right information.
0: Okay, so what specific information are you looking for? See if I can help.
6: Oh, uh, a telephone number or something like that or something I could talk to.
0: Now, there is a an adult dental program here. There's a variety of eligibility requirements that you have to hit. So that's, of course, administered by the Department of Health and Community Services. Let's see if there's an easy phone number for you to call on that. You know, there's an adult dental program. There's also a... Okay, here, I'm just picking on something here for you. I'm
3: uh, outside of St. John's and stuff like that too, right?
0: Sure. Okay. Well, here's a general inquiries number that you might be able to uh, get some help. So all other areas. Okay, here we go, toll free. It's uh, 1-800-563. 563. 1-5? 1-5. 7
6: 5-7, Okay. All right. Thanks,
0: then. No problem. Good luck, Florence. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, dental care, you know, it's one of those curious ones. Even at the federal government level, of course, with the agreement between the federal NDP and the federal liberals to keep the liberal minority parliament in place, dental care was one of them. But it was pretty strange how that one got addressed, I guess, enough to satisfy Jugmeet Singh and the federal NDP. It came in the form of a $500 check. And who's to say that would be spent on anything to do with dental care? We know that the NDP and then-federal member Jack Harris put forward a plan to include dental care inside our universal, care, or me, our universal health care, and it, doesn't, it hasn't happened. Now, there are some dental care coverage plans here in this province, low-income, children. There is an adult care program. But, you know, as described by medical professionals, dental health is absolutely a key component of your overall health. And there's actually links between uh, dental issues and things like dementia and cardiovascular issues and up and down the line. So, you know, to further that conversation about how the province approaches uh, the dental care, I think is a big one. And also, I think there's probably room for more conversation about pharmacare. Look, I understand people who are saying, look, all the money that's gone out the door, we've got to be a little bit more choosy about how we spend. Absolutely right and absolutely fair. Are, is there a cost-benefit analysis in place for expanding or uh, absolutely having Pharmacare across the board? And there is. The shorter answer is yes. So uh, Dr. Eric Hoskins, he did the most recent analysis of Pharmacare, and it does come with the whopping big price tag. But if you're at all curious about it, it's easy to find the document and the report that was uh, commissioned by the government, and it shows quite clearly the numbers of people that do not have any support. And there's got to be a way to... Understand what Dr. Hoskins has reported and the cost savings and the bulk buying power that would come to bear if the province has joined forces on pharmacare. But what happens if you don't have any insurance coverage and you end up more and more unwell and then consequently you have potential to be hospitalized? So that's more the most expensive thing in the country. So The other trick to that is try to find a way to implement it without letting Corporate Canada off the hook. Because many people will have some support for their uh, pharmaceuticals through their employment. So we don't want to take all the burden and put it on the government, or the burden, we don't want all the costs to be on the shoulders of the government. Because for those who have some coverage now, partial or otherwise, with your employer, We can't see that go by the wayside so that becomes a really tricky piece of implementing any expansion of or the full-on inclusion of pharmacare in the country let's go ahead and take that break when we come back we're looking forward to speak with you on a topic of your choosing don't go away welcome back to the show well as i mentioned off the top you know mondays might be a good day to talk about what is a big conversation in the corporate world is about changing the way we work and where we work one of them of course we had Many people had the experience of working from home or remote work during the heights of the pandemic, and then whether it be the issue with uh, all the federal government employees being brought back into the office and some of their concerns, whereas I'm sure you have friends like I do that have been working from home since the beginning of the pandemic and haven't gone back. I'm really quite pleased with how it's working. The other issue with how we maybe are changing how we work is the number of days. So, I've spoken about the four day work week a few times in the past. So, we just have now the conclusion of the largest trial into the four day work week ever. And this happened in the UK. So, 61 companies, including some 3,000 employees, took part in this pilot project. The research was being conducted by Boston College and the University of Cambridge. So, a couple of key uh, takeaways here 15% of the employees who participated said no amount of money could convince them to go back to working five days a week. So, you know, you. Boil the work week back to some 32 hours a week, but still 100 percent of the pay. And here's some of the the issues of the 61 companies that took part in the trial. 56 said they would continue to implement four-day work weeks after the pilot ended. 18 said the shift would be permanent. Two companies extended the trial. Only three companies uh, did not plan on carrying it on with the four-day work week after the pilot project was over. So 56 of 61 said they would continue on with it. The outcomes were clear. Here are some of the issues that were broached. There was increased revenue, reduced absenteeism, reduced resignations, improved employee well-being. So the upside has been quite clear. And whether it be Microsoft in one country, I can't remember exactly where they implemented it. Profits went up, efficiencies went up, productivity went up, employees' well-being was improved, lack of reduction in resignations, a reduction in absenteeism. So there's maybe something for employers to consider because this is not about the new, what people might refer to as the lazy workforce. Canada has a productivity problem. We do, and we long have had that problem. So this is not about accommodating for the sake of or to coddle or to handhold. There seems to be some major league upside for the corporations themselves. So if absenteeism is down, productivity is up, revenue is up, profits are up, your employees are happier, consequently probably working harder and more productive, then I wonder how many companies will be giving it some careful consideration. Because it seems to me that if it makes things better for employees and our efficiency, productivity, revenue, profit goes up, maybe, just maybe, there's something more to it. Okay, let's go to line number one. Linda, you're on the air. Hi, Linda. Linda on line number one. Good morning, Linda. Oh, good morning, Patty. You're on the air.
3: Thank you so much. No problem. Yeah, I just want to uh, run this uh, by you because I, I, along with a lot of other uh, Canadians and Newfoundlanders, I'm sure, would like to have a little bit more information about this digital ID that they're talking about. It seems that, uh, from what I've heard from previous listeners, uh, there's more concern about the health digital ID rather than the transportation. Like, has anyone mentioned the uh, the strategic plan that they have for the future transportation in Canada.
0: What transportation idea are you talking about?
3: Well, it's called the Traveler's um, Digital Identity. It's referred to, through the Western Star, the KTDI. And apparently, uh, Canada and the Netherlands, they are the two... Project pilot project countries that have signed up, and from what I can read in the Western Standard, apparently they've been signed up since 2018 for this digital, which will make all of the individual travelers' lives much better, (laughs) as they say. Okay, so
0: you're the lady who sent me the the article this morning.
3: Yes, I am now. uh, Were you able to
0: read it? I I was. I actually read it very quickly. It's a very short article, and this is stuff coming from the Digital Borders Report. But what in that article troubled you? Because I think... Some people, uh, whether it be media organizations or otherwise, they're really hanging their hat on fear associated with the World Economic Forum. So this article very specifically draws that distinct link between the WEF and any work towards digitalization and or digital IDs. So why didn't that article itself gave you pause First for worry?
3: Right off the top, right off the top, I, I, I question how transparent our government is.
0: Well, yes, that's fair. We have
3: not known anything about this. This has been happening since 2018, and, and they have a goal for 2030. And this digital ID has already started here in Canada without any of us knowing anything about it. That's my biggest concern.
0: Yeah, but we don't have one. I, I'm, I get a little bit confused with some of the concerns that are voiced, Like for instance, with the health uh, ID digital records are already a thing. You know, we've already seen the problem with the uh, cybersecurity here. Our Meditech system was hacked, so people have legitimate concerns, because it just happened. Tens of thousands of people's of personal information has been compromised.
3: Yes, exactly. But now, you know- Isn't that going to be the same, that, uh, excuse me, but I think that's going to be my, my concern as well, is that not only the digital, the health, yes, you're right, everything can get hacked if it's online. If you have a card in your pocket, that's fine. Nobody can get at your card in your pocket. Unless you you, you uh, throw it out there on the line somewhere for somebody to get their hands on, but um, I, I'm I'm a little bit concerned that what is it they're going to be collecting for us to be able to travel? What 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 kind of a traveler's uh, what information do they want? It's uh, like is it part of our health records? Is it who knows? We none of us have any information. There's been no there's been no information put out there. There's been no meetings, there's been no consultations, there's been nothing, as far as I can see. It seems like the, the, the government signed up for this in 2018, but well, where does that leave the rest of the, the Canadians uh, finding out what? Through uh, uh, an online media that the government the government has uh, closed off most of the individual, the, the independent media. Now, the Western Star is one of the, sh- the biggest, if not the biggest, with two uh, over 2 million articles per month and read by over 850,000 Canadians. And that is by no means uh, misinformation that's coming out of there. That's all.
0: Oh, some, some of it absolutely is. Some of it is purposefully misleading. But let's just stick with the health ID for a second. So. All the information surrounding your health is already in the hands of the government. They, I mean, they have it all. The government delivers health care services, and at wait this
3: now, wait, 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 no, just a second, Patty. Our provincial government has it all.
0: Yeah, but these these health IDs are still going to be provincial issues.
3: They're going to be con- they're going to be federal. The federal is turning it into a federal.
0: There's going to be a database, but, I mean, the goal is to understand things like uh, information for Stats Canada, how many people have a family doctor, how many do not, all those types of things. The information is already online. If someone wants to hack in and get it, they can do it. Regardless if they hack in through the Government of Canada's website or the Meditech system here in the province, but just think about what we currently do with healthcare. I can go to a clinic or go to the triage nurse at the health sciences, for instance, and I've got to give them information out loud. (laughs) right? Anyone can hear me tell them, my social insurance number. Uh, beyond that, we're faxing stuff around. So my personal health information might be sitting on a fax machine unattended wherever inside a government that anyone can see, anyone can pick up. People are already going through the nosy ones, are going through medical records as employees of, say, for instance, Eastern Health and otherwise. So yep. our, our, our information is already out there. And you know
3: what my answer to that is, Patty? What's that? This is going to make it a whole lot easier for somebody to get it all in one little spot instead of, oh, well, I heard this one say my phone number. I heard this one say my MPCP. Oh, well, I had to list this on my form or that. This is going to make it so easy. For the federal government to know every single thing about our health, about our everything, about where we're not even going to be allowed to travel unless we have, like our two shops right now and our booster shop, that's not going to cut it. Well, that's... There's, there's people who are not who are refusing to get a booster shot, even after the two uh, the two shots. Look, like that 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 is the underlying problem. There's so much gray area here that nobody's even talked about. We need to know what is it. Bring on Stoodley and let her explain to us what this is all about. Isn't she our expert? Okay. bring on somebody.
0: No. <laughs> but, but Linda, the, there is no vaccination status issue regarding travel? Anymore. Not yet.
3: Not yet. And,
0: and then you added the two shots plus the booster. The definition okay. of fully vaccinated never changed. It was always no, simply not, two shots is- in the primary series. Pardon?
3: Okay, Patty. So, therefore, when the government gets a hold of all this information, the federal government, who do you think they're going to uh, – th- the people out there with two shots, they will not be allowed to have their ID issued for travel unless they have everything. Well, who said state. that? And it – Well, that's I'm saying that that is my that is my speculation right now. From everything I've read, I speculate that the government will not let people travel. Those people with only two shots will not be considered as fully vaccinated anymore, and they will not be allowed to travel. Now, uh, Danielle Smith, she's been aboard of this for, for weeks and months. She knows it's not a good thing. What is her? Like, you know, like, have you been following her?
0: Yeah, a lot of her big ideas oh, have yes, deflated yes, very are a lot quickly. Of
3: skeptical people around here who are not getting their voices out because there's uh, uh, the, everything is uh, all of the information that is going around that the government classifies quotation misinformation. A lot of it is factual. Factual. We're not allowed to share it.
0: But the, but you're not sharing actual things that are happening. We can all have worries about what might happen.
3: That's not what, no, no. Good
0: well, yes, Linda. You, you've, I mean, you've gone on to tell me that you're not going to be able to travel unless you've had a booster shot, when there's not even any vaccine requirements for travel any longer. And they were always okay. going to be a problem when they were well, currently imposed. Just to, one second, well, Linda.
3: That leads me, me back to the gray area. Why do we not know what's going to be happening for that back, For that, uh travel id why do we not have listed this is going to be okay you're going to have your phone number this that something else you're two shots so or you're fully vaccinated that's about to that can they not give us a list for god's sake they've been in in, in cahoots with the wef since 2018 preparing this pilot project None no of us even knew about it much less know the details Let's have some details. But, uh, is there anyone out there? Part of the issue.
0: Part of the issue with details is it's not even a thing. So, like for instance, what <laughs> yeah, the travel... Hold on, thing, Linda. Linda, hold it's on not a not
3: The thing that the government has paid over hundred million dollars to make it a thing. Should we not know what our money is going into?
0: Is that hundred million dollars? Is that a reference to like McKinsey?
3: That's directly involved with this pilot project that Canada has signed up for.
0: Where did you get that number? I'm just curious. I
3: I think, uh, I'm I'm not sure, I'll have to go back on my notes, but the Western Standard probably has it listed. Okay. You know,
0: with the issue regarding travel and what, uh, if there's any sort of restrictions based on anything like vaccination, well, I'll be shocked because that blew up in government's face, to be honest with you. And, you know, even with the business about returning home as an unvaccinated or vaccinated traveler and all those differences therein. I was vaccinated. I came home from England. I had COVID. So there shouldn't have been any difference with how you return. You know, just about, you know, understanding your risk and risk to the public. That's how we shouldn't have navigated that. But with the travel thing, Like even with that digital passport that was part of the experiment during the pandemic, you know, the government already knows everywhere you've ever been. They, they know all this information. Like, this is not yeah. something that is uh, out of left field here. When I use my paper passport, I present it, that eventually gets digitized. They know there's a stamp that says, I've been to the States or I've been to England or I've been to Ireland or I've been to the, wherever. in the world. They already have all this information. So I'm not 100% that's sure, true. unless there's some personal restrictions that are imposed on people, the information that people are worried about, that's already out there. Like, the government has all that. They have all of that information.
3: Yes, they do. Yes, they do. They absolutely do. But uh, when you say it blew up in their face, as far as I'm concerned, and a lot of other Canadians are concerned, there's a lot more than that that went wrong. Because, uh, first of all, we were all uh, uh, absolutely uh, um, talked into the fact that if you get these two shots, you're going to save Grandma. Well, Grandma didn't get saved, did she? (sighs)
0: I mean, I That's don't even know really what, what to say saying. about those initial vaccine conversations. I really yeah. have no idea how to react well, to any the of that.
3: vaccine thing, if it ever comes on board again, then it's going to be uh, 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 crazy. It's going to be crazy if they put all this. I'm just saying that I'm just uh, scenario.
0: Yeah, I I mean, painting painting those pictures. I mean, I don't even know if some of that is even real reality, to be honest with you. Like when they drop a COVID vaccine mandate and so much has changed and there's so many different eligibility issues for access to. And now we understand much more about how effective and safe it is and all these things. I mean, I would be absolutely 100 percent. Shocked if there was any more conversation about mandating that type of stuff. Okay. It did not go well. Well, Abby, well it didn't I go well. Linda. They 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 took it away, right? I mean, the, the, I if we're talking about what actually shocked. happened,
3: what? I am quite shocked. They may have taken away for travelers, but they have not taken it away for people in this province who need to go to work. Yes, they and have. The people in this province cannot get into their work because they have to be, have shops.
0: Certainly not. Not in happened. the public sector. They don't.
3: Oh. Well, I don't know about in the public sector, but there's companies all over Newfoundland. They, you cannot get. But that's,
0: that's that's not the government's fault.
3: No, it is the government's fault for letting them keep the mandates. They should have been. They should have been mandated to take the mandates away.
0: I don't. I don't know one single company that has any of that stuff in place. And certainly, no, nor in no, the public sector, all of those requirements are gone.
3: Well, uh, I think. I think uh, uh, um, there's an awful lot of. Um, Acting, um, um, industrial, uh, there's a whole lot of uh, different... Like all of the film industry in Newfoundland. You can't get a job in the I, film industry.
0: I don't think so. Nope. I, I, no. I I don't think you're right. I don't know of one single company okay, that has well a I, vaccine mandate.
3: I personally know a person who applied for something with the um, um, Mark Riches show and uh, they're not taking anybody who don't have their shots. They wouldn't even give him an interview.
0: I can get that confirmed in a heartbeat.
3: Yes, I wish you could. I would really. Well, wish
0: I, you could. I I can go directly to the man himself and ask him if that's the yeah. case. But I don't know a single company that has a mandate in place any longer. Linda, I'm late for the news, but I appreciate your time.
3: And I appreciate yours, Patty. I really would like to have somebody address this uh, this travel ID, oh, if it's possible. Okay. Accessible.
0: Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Let's take a break. Join us for On Target, one
7: hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday
0: afternoons at one on your VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line two. Glenn, you are on the air. Hello. Hi, Glenn. How are we doing this morning, Patty? Excellent, thanks. You? Good. Excellent show. Thanks for all
8: the knowledge over the years. Uh, I got a thought on this medical shortage that we got with doctors and technicians and everything else, why don't we bring the medical school down into the high school where they can start with stuff like terminology, procedures and this so when they actually finish school they know if they got the capabilities to actually pass. And to get into medical schools.
0: Yeah, there's a long road between uh, grade 12 and being admitted into a med school. A lot of that kind of stuff, I guess, takes place at the post secondary institutions. But I don't deny the fact that if we know that someone has an interest in one thing or another, a vocation, a trade, uh, become a healthcare professional, or work in the tech sector, you know, offering opportunities inside the outside the core curriculum into some of the electives that are a little bit more focused like that is certainly not a bad idea.
8: Yeah, because like years ago when they had shop and everything in school, a lot of the people that took it went into uh, the courses they were taking in high school, whether it be mechanics or carpentry or whatever. Uh, It would also save them probably a year, a year and a half of schooling because they already got this core information learned because this this sniping of doctors and nurses, we're we're on a losing battle with that.
0: Yeah, you know, again, where your interest lies before you get into general studies, at say, for instance, Memorial University, there is still a pretty long path between getting into one of the advanced schools, especially if we're talking about being a doctor. You know, you needed a degree in something that qualifies inside the world of science. I suppose that's probably the be all and end all. But yeah, I mean, preparing. Look, there's lots of stuff that we could indeed be doing in school, in high schools in particular. Maybe more attention to the realities of money and. I know there's lots of uh, curriculum being developed to do exactly that. I've long contended that maybe something as fundamental as every high school student does a first aid course for real life scenarios that may pop up. So there's things we can do outside of the the traditional, the three R's and the focus on. And I don't really know exactly what's going on in high school these days. My boys are are long finished their high school experience. But yeah, preparation for what comes next is always important because that's basically what we're trying to establish inside the K-12 system anyway, is prepare you for what next steps are, whether that be go straight to a trade school or go to the Marine Institute or go to Mon, or do whatever is next in your academic career. So, yeah, a bit of prep certainly helps.
8: Yeah, because you get out of high school now, you you don't even know how to fill out your, your income taxes or do up a budget or how a visa works. You know, you're taking, you can give somebody the square root of a jar of pickles. You just don't know how to open up. And uh, I don't think that, 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 that's right because they're not preparing them for the basic realities of life. So I don't know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, so, unless you do something very specific, you know, to understand the Pythagorean theorem is only of benefit to some, not to all. But I'm not going to dispute your base point here, Glenn, that, you know, preparing a grade 12 student for what's next with a little bit more attention, and I don't know if it's medical terminology or whatever the case may be, but sure.
8: Yeah, well, just a fact because the, the problem is not going to go away because the people are just, just not there, You've got to put, I think, a, a lot more effort into getting people into the medical system to start, to start filling positions. Because I see, like, uh, Australia is looking for doctors. Uh, uh, Ireland is looking for doctors and they're advertising on Facebook and everything. So it's, it's not just a Newfoundland problem. It seems to be a worldwide problem
0: oh absolutely there's a well certainly across this country there's a distinct shortage every province is singing pretty much the same tune about healthcare yeah. professionals I appreciate the time Glenn anything else you want to say no that's good sir you have yourself a great day same too take care okay bye All right, bye bye. Uh, let's take a break when we come back the president of municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador is Amy Cody she's in the queue Don't go- welcome back to the show let's go line number one say good morning to the president at MNL that's municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador Amy Cody good morning Amy you're on the air
6: Hi, Patty. Thanks for taking my call this morning. Hope everyone is doing well.
0: Doing fine here. I can only speak for myself, but uh, appreciate making time for the program. So here we go, the lead into budget consultations. And everyone has their list of needs or wants or demands or however they want to phrase it. What's m l talking about?
6: Well, at M and L, I mean, there's three, four major things that we're talking about. Three, um, you know, absolutes. The first, of course, is the municipal operating grants. Um, you know, they've been held at 22 million since 2015. Um, the buying power of that 22 million today, with the cost of inflation, would cost about 28 million to our municipalities. So, our big ask for uh, budget for the MOGs is a six million dollar increase that um, needs to be funneled out to our municipalities. The seven largest municipalities in the province don't avail of municipal operating grants at all. Um, So, you know, this money is needed for our communities to complete infrastructure, to provide services to our communities, and uh, just really continue to keep them sustainable and, uh, and move forward to provide services to the residents. So, you know, a $6 million ask, we don't feel that's a lot of money. Um, considering everything has increased and everybody is feeling the strain um, but we need that
0: the MOGs are based on per capita formula are they?
6: that 's correct, yes, yep, yeah. and we have so many uh, of our municipalities, you know, with less than a thousand people we 've done uh, with our own municipal budgets we 've done what we 've can we 've cut where we can we 've increased where we can, uh, but a lot of these small communities with aging population on fixed income, not a lot of commercial business in those areas, you know we do the best that we can with what we have Um, but because inflation has just been such had such a tremendous impact on us the last couple of years and last year especially uh, we just can't stretch it any further
0: and inside the world I guess infrastructure has got to be part of this as well so inside that world there's all, all sorts of things that fall under the umbrella of infrastructure but two come to mind in this province is potable drinking water and wastewater treatment we have all missed the deadline Well, for the most part most every community has missed the deadline from the federal government on wastewater treatment but we've still got huge numbers of communities that are on some of them decades old boil order advisories what's MNL asking for in the infrastructure world
6: well of course you know the infrastructure uh, funding would help to to alleviate some of the strains in those areas with being able to do the required um the required improvements, replacements, you know, that we need to be able to provide uh, good drinking water to our residents. We've also talked about the, um, you know, the drinking stations where you would go to a central uh, location, Pudu's they're called, which is always just a strange acronym to me, but they're portable drinking water stations. And, you know, instead of having uh, the ability to turn on your tap to get drinking water, which we know costs a huge amount of money, um, you know, one of the ways we could get around. That is to have those kudos in individual communities where people could go to those stations and fill up their water containers. It's not the ideal solution, but it is a solution. It gives access to residents to clean drinking water. So, you know, that's that's where this infrastructure money um, can certainly help in our communities and that's why we need to be able to access and and get that
0: money some of the programs have hard and fast deadline dates either for application or for monies to be spent one big pot of money that's still sitting out there is i don't know what the total is but inside canada's infrastructure program and again i think it's at the end of next month that that money has to have uh, uh, flown out the door we're nowhere near spending all the money that's allotted for this province
6: Yeah, it's really unbelievable uh, to us at this point. Um, It's the um, Investing in Canada Infrastructure Program. And as of the October fiscal update... 38% 38% of that money uh, that was allotted to Newfoundland and Labrador remains unspent, and that totals $213 million. <laughs> um, it, it is. It's it's unreal when you look at the needs of our communities to know that that money is out there. Um, so we have written a letter to um, the Federal Infrastructure Minister, Dominic LeBlanc, and our Provincial Transportation Minister, uh, Elvis Lovelace, um, asking for answers. You know, why is this money unspent? The deadline Mine is March the 31st. Um, you know, we, we've asked for rationale as to, you know, where that money is, why hasn't it been spent, and we've also asked that if that money is unallocated, um, instead of that being lost, we've asked for it to be transferred into the Canada Community Building Fund, which we um, used to be referred to as the gas tax, which is what yeah. a lot of people recognize it as. But there are so many uh, less restrictions in the Canada Community Building Fund the application process is is not as uh, stringent as the icip application um you know with the icip funding uh, when you apply you may apply for several projects um if one comes under budget um you know even though the money was approved for that project you're not allowed to reallocate that to another project that may be be over or if there's additions to the project that you didn't see coming um, and one portion of the project the same project given um, you know if if one portion of a project is under budget and another portion is over budget you're not allowed to spend the money to you know to reallocate it within the same project which is so disappointing and it's so difficult you do so much to manage these projects and to be coming up against a brick wall all the time so within the Canada um, the um, Canada Building Fund you know we can do that. And there's also the ability to carry that money over to the following year, which is huge. It helps with our planning. It helps with our development. Um, it just gives us much more flexibility to be able to do what we need to do. So that's huge for us. And, um, you know, we need we have a minist- uh, meeting with Minister Lovelace next week, um, M&L, myself and uh, my team at M&L. And we're going to talk to Minister Lovelace about that. That's so important. That's a massive amount of money that has been allocated for Newfoundland and Labrador that is on the table that we can't access so we definitely need to get some answers on
0: that. Is that something the province can even do uh, with a federal pot of money and is the transfer from the infrastructure program to the Community Building Fund is that even a possibility?
6: Well, that's what we're asking for. We want to find out if that is the case um, because it it leaves the money in Newfoundland and Labrador and allows us to be able to access it instead of it being gone. The federal government does issue the money and control the program, but it passes it to the province as well. So the province gets to have, you know, hands-on on what these projects are, manage the projects from the provincial level in dealing with the municipalities, which is never a bad idea because we do want... Uh, you know, the money to be managed properly and make sure it's getting out to the communities and make sure the communities are using it the way that it's intended to be used. Um, But we need to know, you know, is there something going on that this is not happening? Um, We need some, you know, we need it to be... more accessible um and we need to be able to see you know transparency in these projects what's going on is there something we're not aware of um what do you need from us and you know how can we how can we access that money how can we help you get that money to us
0: We had Minister Howell on from the Department of Municipal Affairs last week. She was talking about some new grant money available for uh, communities, but I also, of course, asked her about where we are with the regionalization. It's over a year ago now that the report from the working groups was presented to government. I asked her about the status. Not really sure I understood much more than I did prior to asking her the question about where we are. So I'll ask you, where are we?
6: I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, Patty. Um, you know, we are continuing to work with the Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs on regionalization. We talk to them on a regular basis. Um, we know that they are still working on the regional plan, but it's time for action. We This plan was presented a year ago. Our municipalities are asking for regionalization. They want it. We need it. Um, we need a plan. We need a commitment from government on what is happening, and we need some clear communication on what they're doing to, uh, you know, make regionalization happen, what they're doing to make it possible. So, uh, you know, it's something that we continue to work on the department with. Um, We're confident, you know, they're assuring us that regionalization will happen. Um, You know, the the minister did mention that a lot of communities are working on a regional approach now individually. The issue with that is that we can't wait for them to start doing it naturally. Um, You know, we need to have a plan in place to help them do it and to do it sooner rather than later. Uh, you know, not when it's out of necessity that they have to work together, because they want to work together currently and uh, and that's why we need that plan to come out and start moving forward with that. It's just, it's too important.
0: And I, I know that it's not as simple as, you know, here's a county system plan, now everyone in different regions or different pockets of the province ahead not implement it because what works in one area probably won't work in another or might not work in another area, so I know Know it's complicated, but we've been talking about this forever, and not very much has uh, really happened. You know, some communities have taken it upon themselves for baby steps towards more collaboration, whether it be like in Wabush and Lab City regarding the recreational complex, and a couple of examples here on the island where, you know, communities have pooled their efforts, whether it be for waste management or other similar items. So it's common. Some communities, whether people want to hear it or not you know, the end is coming. When they have a certain age of population and so many young families leaving, no economy of scale, at some point, pooled resources are going to be the only way out. And if we wait until the 11th hour, it's going to be chaotic, it's going to be more expensive, and it might not even be, we might encounter problems that we're completely unable to rectify or address properly. So we'll see where it goes, but hopefully that's sooner than later. Uh, Last thoughts to you, Amy, go ahead.
6: Yeah. And I just wanted to reiterate that, Patty, like our municipalities, they do so much with so little. Um, our communities, we, you know, we want them to be sustainable. We want them to, to, to thrive, not just survive. Um, and we know a regional approach is what is necessary. Um, we went through the report. We worked with the team. We worked with municipal and provincial affairs, our partners, the professional municipal administrators. Minister Howell said she spoke. She did a province-wide tour talking to the lsds we've spoken to lsds who are looking at uh, incorporating to become municipalities you know they all see the value um i mean with respect to some you know who who you know, are still not in favor of a regional approach. But for the most part, the support is there. We know what's necessary. We know what's needed. There's a plan in place. It just needs to be implemented. And it's tough to implement that. But like you said, the longer we wait, the more difficult that's going to be and the more difficult it's going to be to implement the plan that is currently recommended. Um, And once you start having to tinker and change that plan, well, then we're back to the drawing board again. And that's not where we need to be. So you know we're hopeful that with the budget coming up, we'll see a renewed commitment to regionalization, a plan rolled out, um, you know, an increase in our municipal operating grants, and the funding with the ICIP program straightened out, and you know, strengthening the uh, Canada Community Building Fund as well.
0: Appreciate the time, Amy. Thank you.
6: Yeah, Patty. Before I leave, I just wanted to join the echoes um, in passing on condolences uh, to the family of Gordon Pinsent. Um, you know, as you know, Gordon. Pinson was from Grand Falls, born in Grand Falls, um, called Grand Falls-Windsor home, you know, his whole life. Um, just such a beautiful, humble man, um, always so proud of his home, so proud of Grand Falls-Windsor, so proud to be a Newfoundlander. He is just a national treasure, and, um, you know, our thoughts are with his family. I just wanted to let people know that um, Up Sky Down Films did a promotional video for us a few years back featuring Gordon Pinson. Uh, talking about his love of Grand Falls, Windsor. Um, so it's just a video, beautiful video of him reflecting on growing up in Grand Falls, Windsor. Um, you know, what his life was like here, how much he loves coming home, what the place means to him. Uh, I encourage people to visit the town of Grand Falls, Windsor Facebook page to view that. It's just a beautiful memory. And also the classic theater here in Grand Falls, Windsor is showing two of Gordon's movies this weekend, The Rowdy Man, which is, of course, just iconic and, of course, the grand seduction. So, um, you know, just a beautiful tribute to uh, a beautiful man that we're so proud to call one of ours, and uh, our condolences to his family and to everybody who adored him.
0: Yeah, no doubt, and I echo that sentiment. And before we say goodbye, I wanted to pass along a happy birthday to you.
6: Thank you so much. I did get your greeting yesterday. I appreciate it. Uh, I am truly blessed. I have the most supportive family, the best friends, the the most amazing colleagues. Um, you know, I I couldn't ask for more. I'm just I'm. It's a happy birthday, and every day is just a great day. So thanks, Patty. I appreciate that.
0: My pleasure. Take good care, Amy. You too. Right, bye bye. Amy Cody is the president at M and L. Break time. When we come back, Ron's there. Wants to talk about a data breach. At Sobeys, don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. And hey, welcome back. Let's go to line number six. Good morning, Ron. You're on the air.
7: Yeah. Good morning, Patty. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it. Um, uh, on Friday, myself and my wife, we both got individual pieces of mail, and uh, she popped hers open, looked at it. She said, oh, what the hell is this all about like Conor And she sat reading out what she had in hers. And uh, she said it's about being compromised, like, you know, whatever. And I said, who's it from? She said it's from Managed Managed Healthcare Services Incorporated. I said, okay, that's probably about the breach at the hospital like a year or so ago and some whatever. I said, I'll look at it later on, right? So I got up this morning, looked at it, MHCSI, Managed Healthcare Services, Inc., and it was pretty... Uh, generic type of letter is one page right got
0: my name and address and everything on it and Ron isn't it called medical health care medical health services medical health care services yeah, that's what the heading is it's about sobies though right? yeah that's they, they deal with the uh, benefits plans with the pharmacies I think
7: yeah whatever so uh, anyway yeah MHCSI it is right so anyway um, uh, I called a number and that was on I said well, I wonder because I have no idea what this is about Right at this point in time right I said I wonder if this is the the scam guys or the scam guys got a new way instead of going digital they're going with letters now or something right so i phoned the 1-8 number on it and the guy answered the phone and I asked what the thing and he said yeah he's like kind of he's right nonchalant about it all and i said he said how can i help you what's your specific question he said i said well it says here that um by way of background check uh, you could be your employer or your benefits program and i got like you know, an employer. You know, I did have an employer. I did have a benefits program. I do have another one. Uh, I did have employer plans and all this stuff. And I'm thinking like, what the hell is this all about? Like, right? Somebody said, your name, your email address, your residential address, your date of birth, your benefit plan, identification numbers, and anything for your dependents may be all compromised. And we've reported it all to the regulatory authorities and law enforcement in your area and all this stuff. I'm thinking. The, I said, buddy, but what, what part of my personal information was compromised here?" He said, Do "You shop at Sobeys." I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, it's Sobeys." Yeah. So, Sobeys was compromised, but like when I got this letter, it was the first time I got anything like that. So, did you have hair tell of this
0: before, Laker? I have. You know. uh at the beginning, they really downplayed what was going on here. They simply said they had a, a problem accepting uh, gift cards and that there was going to be some complications at the pharmacy. Never until just very recently did they admit that this cyber hack really compromised a lot of people's personal information. And so now they're going through this process here. I do know someone who works at Sobeys and their information was compromised, I guess through the probably the same hack. And they were offered one year of credit monitoring. And not much more. Was there any offers included in this to help protect yourself and help protect your identity and your personal information?
7: No, no. <laughs> and the person took the call, seemed pretty nonchalant about it all. It's just like oh, I was another call. I know you take calls all morning, mate, like, but this guy, you know, he's probably at home taking calls all day, kind of thing, right? And he's pretty, you know, pretty nonchalant about it. Like, you know, I've had more passion expressed by my friends about a softball game or something. <laughs> it's like it's, He didn't seem very engaged in my well-being or anything. He just seemed like it was just another call he was taking, right, you know? You know, so, you know, it was just, I don't know. It just sort of caught me off guard when I read it as, you know. And, I, and really, on the letterhead, I have not it, it doesn't say anything about Sobeys on Very, very generic. It's like, you know. Is, I had no idea if it was my past employer, my pension plans, my. I had no idea what this was about.
0: Yeah, I'd like to see one of the letters just for my own curiosity.
7: Can I send this to you somehow, a picture of it or something? Yes, yeah, send a picture a, email of it. Or something? Yeah, do that. Okay, so uh, I think I got a VOCM.com. What
0: is it? No, just it's a open line at VOCM.com. Okay. Yep. Thank you. Please do send it along. Thanks a lot. I'll send it right away now. Okay, Ron. Okay, bye. All the best. Bye bye. So uh, someone just sent uh, one of the comments. I guess that's included in the letter and or maybe it's just uh, directly from Empire Inc., of course, which is the parent company of Sobeys. It says, we have have seen no evidence that personal data was accessed or removed from our servers. However, out of abundance of caution, we have sent notifications to those who could have been potentially impacted and in compliance with our regulatory obligations. IT security is and always will be a priority for us. But boy, you know, I imagine the big question is when did they know this? Because I remember when the Sobe's data breach took place and there were signs at the cash and they couldn't accept a gift card. And then we were told that they were having a hard time processing uh, prescriptions at their pharmacy and what have you. Not to the extent of what they're talking about here. And they say even after insurance coverage is availed of, it's going to cost somewhere in the neighborhood of $25 million to get their digital house back in order. Boy, let's take a break. Lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Derek, you're on the air.
9: Yes. Is it Patty? That's me. Okay, I'm on the side of the road here now, The uh, That letter that the guy was talking about that he got in the mail yesterday, there was a lot of letters going out by that, and uh, I did, didn't have none You know, I wasn't involved with it. They said that it was your employer's uh you know your medical thing that that you got through your employers and i said well that my employer used great best life and they also used canadian and i said not not this crowd and so i googled that and it did letter, the, what i came up on my screen on the computer the letter itself is a scam uh based on what i'm sorry the letter itself is a scam. I mean say the letter that they're sending out they're gonna they're gonna give you free subscription to this magazine or something for managing your affairs and you are going to give you two for two years. And uh, they say that, uh, you know, you just got to do this and do that and sign up and you'll get a free subscription. But it, it all seems suspicious to me, so I Googled it. And when I Googled it, it actually it said that the letter that they're sending out is a scam. So I don't know what's going on there, Patty Boy, but it's
0: worth looking into. It, it is. Now, I haven't seen the letter yet. Ron said he's going to send it along and I'll be interested in this subscription issue. But this... This company, Medical Healthcare Services Incorporated, is absolutely the company that deals with the group benefit plans and deals with the pharmacies at, at Sobeys and Lawton's. The company, uh, Empire Co., the, which is the parent company of Sobeys, they say that this group is indeed representing them on this hack, and they say that they are this company will be sending out letters to people whose personal information may have been compromised. So that much is real. If there's something at the end, an additional sell for a free subscription that you know before long it's going to renew itself at a cost to you. that stuff we should all be absolutely absolutely wary of but this company is real and this issue and this is representatives even talking from Sobeys themselves talking about this company and the letters that are going out and all the reference to what they now know about who hacked when so yeah if there's anything at the bottom of the letter I'm looking forward to reading it because there's a long way between being told that it happened to then some sort of additional sell at the bottom of a letter regarding whatever type of subscription now if that's about credit monitoring it's also important to understand what that means and who, you're, who the credit monitoring will be conducted by. But when I see the letter, I'll probably understand it a little bit better.
9: But maybe somebody did act their, their, their letterhead and they're sending it out. I don't send it out to Canada Post. I know all that because I even took it down to the Postmaster lady okay. and she took pictures or anything of it. But so maybe, the, you know, the, the, the company might be real, but somebody using their letterhead to send this out to to try to... People, but it's definitely came up and on, on the, computer, or the computer. I call it the computer. Uh, that uh, yeah, it, the letter was is a scam. They they showed the, the the picture on the computer is exactly the same letter that I got. Right, dear client, blah 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 blah.
0: Yeah, I once I get a hold of that letter, I'll, I'll probably just do this, a couple of things. Follow up with Empire Co. so they can give me some confirmation about exactly what's happening, and Medical Healthcare Services Incorporated, which I just found a link. So I'm going to go through both to see if there's any information that we could get that we could share that could be helpful to the listener. Absolutely happy to do it. Okay, perfect. You have a good day, my friend. You too, Derek. All the best. Yeah, bye. Okay, bye bye. Yeah, I mean, around every corner, right? It's just unbelievable what you can and should be believing or not. Let's go to line number four. Morgan, you're on the air.
10: Yes, uh, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Just a few words about this uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Okay. All uh, regarding residential schools. Uh, i got to say I'm disappointed uh, in, in the fact that uh, the real perpetrators are the main perpetrators, again, of the ills that were done to the indigenous in these schools are getting off the hook, basically, again, and that's the Catholic Church. Uh, Trudeau, the Liberal government, in January, this January, 2023, just announced uh, $20 billion in to settle their part of the so-called the class action suit and another $20 billion to help the indigenous in the terms of mental reforms and whatnot. And I think the Catholic Church, out of it all, might have spent $30 million, which basically came from uh, the diocese, the same as here, what's on the here with the Mount Cashel issue. Uh, they never put any money into it. What they did here, as you know, just sold off the properties, no regard to, for uh, uh, the congregations or anybody else, and, and, and no liability. Well, liability, yes, they were found liable, but up here again, Basically, the Pope, the indigenous, the Indians went to, as you know, to Rome and tried to make the case and look for an apology, and I think they got a half-assed apology. Then the Pope come here last year, basically, he did apologize for what he considered their part in the residential schools. The only part he accepted liability for was trying to assimilate the indigenous, the Indians, into our culture. Nothing at all about the suicides, the rapes, sexual assault, and yet they're getting away with a possibly 30 to 50 million, and we're under hook as taxpayers. Not to say I, I don't want to see, I, I wish the indigenous all the good in the world. What was done to them was horrendous. It's indescribable what was done. But we as taxpayers are paying for it. Now, granted branch of the government funded the indigenous, these uh, residential schools, but... Uh, I don't know. The the, the Catholic Church got me totally, and I'm a Catholic, grew up Catholic, but totally, totally disillusioned. I don't know of anybody. I I, I, I needed a place to vent today, and you're the man, because... we had a bit of a get-together the weekend, and that was a topic, and I, I, I'm still mad as a hatter about it, how to get away with it. The, art, the goddamn arrogance about it all. this ridiculous.
0: Well, they've been able to, over the centuries, shirk responsibility on a variety of fronts, including this. If I remember correctly, the Catholic Church wasn't the only church involved in residential schools. I think there's a couple of other faiths that were also administering residential schools. But I mean, even just bringing it back to, I know you made a brief mention of Mount Cashel. For us to be on the hook and for churches to be sold off from under parishioners and congregants as opposed to the Vatican footing the bill for these types of things is ridiculous and this is another example.
10: You're right on the money like you say, residential schools uh, uh, I I remember back now I grew up in the 50s and 60s Uh, The issues with the Indigenous and the the situation they were into after being uh, introduced to European diseases and and, and alcoholism, about the top, top, the top crucifier of all. You're right, Indigenous schools were started prior to Confederation, actually, uh, prior to 1867, the Anglican Church, in an attempt to help these people who were sick and being ravaged by european diseases started residential schools and hostels mainly out west i don't know but here on arona labrador up in the northern provinces and basically you know there's no i suppose there's no bones about it they tried to evangelize them but teach them about god i don't see that as being a a great wrong and basically mainly to administer to the sick of these European disease, that's the adults now. Assimilation, and he wanted to provide schools, which they did to the, the young indigenous. Assimilation wasn't even given part to Paddy at the time, and that's basically what the Pope apologized for. Now, once the Catholic Church got a hold of it, as time went on and they became administrators, there's where the issues arose. And here they are, the main perpetrators, getting off the hook again. I, I, I don't know, I, I got I, I had the card you I don't normally call open now and I listen to you. But man, I, I, I don't know. And even, even after the nineties here with our own, uh, devastating for the hickeys and, and, and all the ch- priests that got charged with sexual assault and all this kind of stuff, I didn't go to mass or church. Uh I suppose twenty years I was that mad. And I went and the only place I did go was the basilica. It had a history. My grandfathers used to tell me when he used to go to the seal hunt and the seal fishery, the, the priests would come down and bless the fleet, and they go there a Saturday evening, say a few prayers before they went to sea. So every time I went out there, I didn't listen to anybody. I just daydreamed about the old times. Until this one Saturday evening, we were out there. That's a few years back now, and, and I'm I'm... I'm, I'm blown off, and i going off on a different track, so I'll leave it at this. We were out there in mass, and the priest got up, and he said, we a second collection today, another collection. We're going to take up a defense fund for Bishop Lachey. And I swore in the pew, and Buddy looked at me, and I grabbed the his hand, and I said, get me the F out of here. Take up a defense fund for Bishop Lachey. Now, that's the arrogance of these people. I grew up with the priest, just as arrogant, and if not arrogant, and and I don't know if you're old, you're not old enough uh, to, to realize the power the church had. The church here, confederation first and back in responsibility, government day ran the government. They were, the governments wouldn't do anything without asking these people, and 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 the majority of them today got still got this arrogance, but they can't be so bold because of someone will make away with them. But anyhow. You did me a favor. I think my blood pressure's have to drop in about 10 or 15 points, so I'm just wondering if anybody's so mad as me about the situation or is it just me?
0: Oh, well, no. Thanks for listening to me. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate the call. And no, you're not alone because we've had similar conversations, mostly about the Mount Cashel relationship as opposed to residential schools. And I kind of am old enough to remember the power that the church held. And it's, been, the, its grip has been weakened. But of course, I went to a Catholic boy's school in the denominational system and the the church played a massive role in our lives. Uh, Morgan, good to have you on. Appreciate the time.
10: uh, Thank you, and uh, I might call you again
0: sometime. I look forward to it. Right on, bye. Take good care. Bye-bye. Before we go to the break, we're going to line number five. Good morning, Danny. You're on the air. Good morning, sir. How are you? Great. You? Good.
9: I found a laptop down in part of our village this morning, and uh, it still works. So if anybody out there lost a laptop, they can uh, give me a call and identify it, and they can certainly
0: have it back. Strange thing to lose down in the gut, a laptop.
9: <laughs> yeah, I found it on the side of the road.
0: Okay, so someone obviously is looking for their laptop, and if you were in and around the gut, uh, I suppose it's probably as recent as today because someone would have picked it up prior had they seen it. So if you can identify your laptop, you give Danny a shot. You want to give us your number?
9: Yeah. Go for uh, it. 691. Yeah. Seven four nine one.
0: Good man, I bet you're going to get a call pretty quickly here, Danny. Six nine one seventy four nine two one.
9: Yeah, I opened it up. It still works.
0: Okay, perfect. All
9: right. Okay, my friend, thank you, Connie.
0: My pleasure. Take care. Good down you. So yeah, your laptop, Danny's got it. Six nine one seven four nine one. Break time. When we come back, we're talking about mental health and homelessness, and Crown lands. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 12.30 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Catherine, you're on the
7: air.
11: Oh, hi, Patty. Hi. Hi. So I just, uh, I wanted to start by first kind of giving a little bit of a background, if I may, about myself. Sure. Um, I... I have what's called complex post-traumatic stress disorder. And that came from um, a lifetime, I guess, of trauma. Um, I was a year and a half old when I was given to my paternal grandmother because my parents weren't able or in the position to keep me. And she was 71 at the time and a little too old to be a mom. And I was too young to be robbed of a childhood caring for her. And that's what my life was like, caring for my grandmother. And I never got to say the word man in my life. I was truly motherless. And from the ages of four to eight, I was sexually abused. I was physically and mentally abused my entire life. I was raped in my womanhood at the age of 12. I was denied the right and the right of my family to give my veteran brother an honorable burial when he died alone during COVID in Nova Scotia, when the bubble was closed. And my last memory of him is a picture of him in a coffin wearing a Johnny coat. In June, I underwent breast cancer surgery and 20 rounds of radiation. Hello? I'm just listening. Okay, I wanted to make sure. I didn't know if I was cut off. Um, So in June, I I underwent breast cancer surgery, and I had 20 rounds of radiation, and after which I developed um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, CPTSD for short. And through my adult life, I had to take SSRIs, or what they call antidepressant medication. to survive life. I mean, to be a contributing member of society, I, you know, with all the trauma, like I just, I had to take care of my mental health and I always did. And I had a successful career. I, was, I am a government employee and I've had no income since December. I've been wrongfully denied my disability insurance. I haven't paid a bill, mortgage payment, car payment, insurance payment in months and I'm only surviving by the help of some family and friends. After multiple appeals and the risk of losing my home, my car, my life as I knew it, I fell to my knees and I surrendered. I could not carry the load of my life, the secrets of my life that were destroying me any longer. So I stood up and I raised my voice like a lion and I mean truly like a lion. And I haven't stopped working since to fight for my life. On Thursday, September the 9th, I set out on a journey. But before I did that, I set up a Facebook page, a group called the NL. Mental Health Crisis Emergency Centre. And I wrote a letter to government expressing my views on the lack of mental health support. I dressed up in a pink coat, a shade for the brave hat that I personally earned and a harmless sign written on the back of a pamper box that read, My name is Complex Post Traumatic Stress Disorder. I am the face of mental health. I am the face of homelessness. Come dance with me. Hugs are free. That sign changed my life that day as I sat out, sat out that day on a journey to experience homelessness. I started at the gathering place, actually. I was I was going to head straight downtown because I, I grew up in that area and that's where my trauma began. But I started at the gathering place and so I shared the plans and my demonstrations with staff there and before I left down my journey they gave me a bag of bread and a bag of estimates for homeless people Um, that won't visit up there they kind of stay downtown they don't go up there so we thought we'd bump into some people I started off at my grandmother's house and all I can say when I started off there I parked my car I marked my territory on the homeless all my life I had no food in my pocket, I had no money, I had fasted for two days. I decided I was going to only ask for a dollar or a coffee from people. I started out there and I walked my, my life to shame. It wasn't my shame, but it was a shame I carried for many, for so many years. I visited, visited some places along my way, some trauma homes and whatnot. I stopped at Howley's Meat Market and I sat with the butcher there that was always kind to me as a child. He'd always slice off a little sliver of cheese when I'd go there, and I wanted to just sit with him for a minute and, you know, just chat. And then I, I started off just walking down doctor Street. I went in and out stores. I visited a store called Crafted Treasures, and I laid all my bread and my mitts in his porch and I went in and I asked if he could give me gloves because my hands were cold. He had a store full of mittens. I saw that and I wanted to see if someone would be kind to a woman that looked which needed a pair of gloves. And he was kind. He took them off his shelf and he put them on my hands, and the mittens said froze to death. (laughs) Um... I didn't steal them, I asked for them. I went to Peaceful Loft. I had $3 earned by begging at that point. And I asked if I could have the lean soup and tea that he always serves everyone that goes in there. And he let me have my lunch and he let me keep my $3. And as I stood in front of three men that were crossing the sidewalk, as I walked down Duckbrook Street, they were, crossing across the sidewalk trying to get into a pay station and they were standing in my path and i just stood there and i stood there for a long time and they just completely ignored me and when i finally one man screamed at me with his arm raised straight out telling me to get as if i was a piece of trash and the meter man told me to leave this man alone I visited the doghouse and was blessed with $2 from a senior lady who had a hole in the top of her mitten And in return, I gifted her with a pair of red mitts that I carried. I was harassed at the Atlantic Place and asked to leave because I kindly asked if someone would be so generous to buy me a small coffee to warm up. I wanted the coffee for another senior gentleman that looked like he needed one, and the coffee shops don't provide anyone with a complimentary coffee in time of need. They prefer to throw it down the sink. I gave away all the money I begged for and, and the bread from the gathering place to a man who was down on her lock and is raising her own children and that of her daughter so they don't end up going in the system. I visited both furriers and thought for sure I'd be asked to leave, but nope, they treated me like a queen and allowed me to try on a very expensive fur coat. It was my first time in my life trying on a fur coat. At the end of that okay. day, I returned turn home, are you going to cut me off, Patty?
0: No, I'm not going to cut you off, but okay, obviously, I'm sorry to hear of your troubles, but where are we going in the conversation? Is, is there something that we can do for you or something that you need? or?
11: Yes, because I want to be able to finish, Patty, like every other person gets to talk on the LCM and finish my story and finish my views on mental health and homelessness and what it feels like to be that person. And if I might have the OSCN's time, who gives everyone a voice, I'd like to have my time, too.
0: Well, I, I, th- I think you're getting that. I haven't said a word for over eight minutes. No, so
11: and I, I appreciate that, but I only just need another moment.
0: You can have another moment. And then the Dave wants me to put you on hold, and he has uh, something for you. So I'll let you wrap it up. Go ahead, Catherine. Thank you. Catherine?
11: Will I continue?
0: You have another minute. Go ahead.
11: So am I still online?
0: Yes, you are.
11: Oh, sorry. So anyway, I returned home that evening to find that out that my home was visited by police all that day and by by evening a crisis unit showed up and didn't even know what the story was or, or, or what they were there checking on me and they kind of left confused. Mental health care is lacking and everyone is suffering. There are children being left in awful situations where CSSD does not have enough resources to get them to safety. Women who have been through a lifetime of abuse are still being abused and have nowhere to go other than a shelter and medicate themselves with drugs to ease their pain. Young men are being criminally charged because they didn't... They've defended their mothers and sisters from severe abuse and they continue to suffer in the system because they can't get a job. They don't get to stop paying the price of an abuser in their life. Survival kicks in, they rob, they cheat, they steal and do drugs to survive their pain. They line up freezing temperatures like prisoners of war to get their meals at the gathering place. I've witnessed the most beautiful being in the world that are beings in the world that are trapped in the system and trapped in their life of trauma. Smart, creative, amazing people that have so much to offer, but their mental health treated. Their mental health that's not being treated that leads to substance abuse, criminal activity and a strain on the system, calling bill- costing billions of taxpayers' dollars. Mental health should be this province's top priority-, priority. Homeless is not the issue. Children need safe homes to stay until it's safe for them to be at home. Existing programs and resources need extra supports in place to address the growing problem of mental health and this problem. Places like the Gathering Place, they're strained. They need the extra help for these people.
0: Right, and I think, and I mean, we certainly talk about mental health uh, on this program a-, a great deal, and rightfully so, because it should be a priority for all levels of government to attend to it. Uh, Catherine, I appreciate the time. I hope you're doing well. Dave wants me to put you on hold. He wants to speak to you for a second. Sure. Okay, thank you. Uh, So Catherine's on hold for you, Dave. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Kurt, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Hi. Uh, How are you doing today, Patty? We're doing okay, Kurt. How about you? Pretty good. Um, I just was calling about, uh, I
4: messaged you earlier there on uh, email about uh, Crown Land in Clarenville. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I was up there, like I said, uh, this past Thursday. Their offices that are closed, and uh, the only way you can get an appointment is, is by phone. And if you can leave a message, that's nearly impossible. And I was just, like I said, kind of curious as to why this office is closed five days of the week to the public and only taking phone calls. I know you said along the lines of that, perhaps, that maybe there's less demand. But um, I'm no, just no, I not
0: know. I asked you a question.
4: I... Oh, okay. Yeah. I was just wondering if that was Well, okay. I understand what you're saying. What um, I'm just curious, if there is less demand and the office isn't being open full-time, is this still a full-time position and someone being paid full-time? And the reason why I'm sort of frustrated with all this is we have a, a, we have a situation that just a couple properties or cabins that have been built around ours that are more apparently illegal, they are not there properly. And we're trying to get the matter fixed up to the point where we've had to deal with uh, the RCMP, amongst others and Wildlife Enforcement to um, have a peace bond and stuff like that. And Crown Land has been informed of the situation and nobody's even bothered to come up to take a look. And this would have probably solved this problem months ago. So we can't get a hold of almost a person let alone um, any satisfaction. I'm just wondering what's going on there. Fair question. Just
0: help me understand what you mean by the two cabins are illegal. What do you mean?
4: Well, they've been built uh, without a a proper lease on Crown Land.
0: And you know this how?
4: Well, because it's been an ongoing battle for the last six or seven months. There's been an application fee, Crown Land and the RCMP have both, well not Crown Land, but Wildlife Enforcement has uh, has informed us as well as the RCMP with their dealings with Crown Land that these cabins are there without permits or without leasing. Okay. So that's how we know this, and of course it's led to, of course, when you've got neighbours and and stuff like that, or they don't agree that it comes to certain things, so we end up having to go to court with peace bonds being put on a couple of them because of threats and stuff like that, and I'm not going to name names here because I have enough threats as it is that I'm dealing with because of this matter.
0: So the people who built the cabins, in your estimation, illegally are threatening you for trying to get to the bottom of it?
4: Well, they're threatening us because they want access to certain areas through our properties from, from our lease of crown land to get through it and stuff. And of course, after well, the RCMP have been up here numerous times to check out the situation, as well as wildlife enforcement is up here. And we're not blocking anybody. We're not doing it in that ground, in, in those terms uh, whatsoever. And it's been proven. But again, this throughout this process, we've had to take again peace bond against these people because of the threats of removing our 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 uh, property, damaging to our property, physical harm to ourselves, that like. So if the Crown Land had done their job and sent somebody up here to set this matter out with a cease and desist and have them either remove their cabins or whatever, what Crown Land is is supposed to do in this matter that's appropriate, this could have probably put this nip this in the bud, but it hasn't been done. It's almost impossible to get through to them. And I just wonder why after nearly probably close to six months of this that uh, nothing's been done.
0: I don't know, uh, number one. But if they're, like, I don't know why some offices aren't reopened here for a counter service for government departments. You know, if and I think if I remember correctly, one of your emails, uh, you said that you couldn't even leave a message because the the service was full. (laughs) So that's less than helpful. Uh, And I don't know about how many people are working in that office or whether or not they're working full time or kind of rate of pay they're enjoying while they're simply working on phone appointments. I don't know.
4: Okay. And the other quick question, or something that I brought up to you last week, you gave me some uh, information to get a hold of uh, Minister John Abbott there regarding Newfoundland housing. Yep. Yeah. And the quick question is, is we have a number of properties here in the Marystown area that are places called Site 1, Site 2, I guess it's called off of Harris Drive, I believe it is. And there are a number of multifamily units. That are they're falling into the ground that uh, could be used at repair, like I spoke to you, like mentioned to you in my email. And I'm just curious as to I haven't received. I've left the messages with his, his office a couple times now. No, no contact has been made whatsoever in regards to as to why these buildings are being allowed to fall into disrepair. And it has a couple upsides if they do repair them. First of all, it's an economic benefit to some local employer around here and somebody with a hammer and some skills. And for one, and we have a, a horrible shortage around here for affordable, decent, clean housing around here. And I'm just curious as to why these buildings are being left to fall into disrepair. I mean, in a while back there, they were selling off some of these units in the Black Duck Cove area, which similar, which isn't too far from here. So I'm just curious as to why this is happening.
0: Well, again, I hate to be coming with the I don't knows, but we've asked Minister Abbott that directly on this program. I've also requested a list of just how many units are currently uh, shuttered, whether or not they are incomplete. They're not going to be repaired or what level of repairs. Give me some breakdown to understand what's going on because I know there's probably going to be a very long maintenance maintenance list for Newfoundland Labrador housing but it seems to me every time that anyone mentions it I'll get an email from one community member or another that says well there's a bunch in my region, there's a bunch in my community, there's a bunch in my town and so if we are seeing that and at the exact same time we're talking about building more emergency shelters, we're talking about uh, the price of rent, the number of people living on the streets, the complications and the eligibility issues for getting appropriate accommodations. It would be nice to know exactly what Newfoundland Labrador Housing has in its portfolio that's not being utilized. So I'm with you. That's an important uh, question because we all know the stories that stem from it. If so so many people are looking for a place and there's a bunch of places that are uninhabited, it would be nice to know why and what the plan is to open those doors back up.
4: I agree. I just think one of the problems we have, unfortunately, today with government is accountability. That this, It's always it's past the buck. It's always turning around. It's always never quite answering the question. If, and the answer is always around about when it comes around. And same as with this office in, in Crown land. It's the same idea. There's no seem to be oversight or accountability for what's going on. Who's watching these people, making sure they're going about and doing their jobs? Why are people being sent out to check these things? What's going on? And, and how do we get this accountability? <laughs>
0: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, You know, the whole issue regarding transparency and whatnot, this housing issue with the numbers of units that nobody's living in and what state of disrepair they may be in, this story is as old as 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 the hills. So but I'll go back to Abbott's office one more time, see if I can't get that list so we can put it out there for consideration as to exactly what is going on. 100%.
4: Well, thank you for your time, Patty. It's nice for you and I to agree on the radio for
0: a change. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate yours. Thanks, Kurt. Okay, take care. You bye too. bye. Bye bye. All right, uh, let's go to line number three. Fred, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. Good morning to you. Patty, I'd like to put on the air if I could. I lost a cell phone
9: yesterday. I think I left it on the bottom of my car and it came off somewhere between Paris and Mount Pearl. Uh oh. And I'm after making four trips looking for it on the side of the road. I just didn't locate it because God knows where it's at. But it's probably in a snowbank or whatever. But could I put my name and number on so if anybody finds it, give me a call? Sure, Fred, go ahead. Uh, My name is Fred. Uh, The number is 782-0790.
0: So somewhere between uh, Mount Pearl and Paradise, and it's a lost cell phone. So if you picked it up, give Fred a shout. In addition to that, Fred, uh, this one lady continually reminds me about this opportunity for people who have lost or found something. If you or someone belong to you uses Facebook, uh, there's a group called NL Lost and Found. So sometimes when people pick up something or they lost something, they go to that and apparently have some uh, significant success. So I'd add that to the equation. But if you picked up a cell phone in that area, Fred's number seven eight two. 7820. 0790. Thanks, very Appreciate the time. Appreciate yours, sir. Good luck. All right. Okay, bye bye. Yeah, and that goes to Danny as well. So, Danny, if you're still listening, you found the laptop down in the gut. You can also post that on that particular Facebook group. Uh, this one lady, every time there's uh, a loss and found item on the program, and I don't mention it, she sends me an email. Uh, so, yeah, helpful reminder. How are we doing on the phone, Dave? Time for the news. When we come back, still plenty of show to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, I absolutely do appreciate uh, when the emails come flying in, as this one did. It was a curious. One though, because it asked me how come we never talk about the price of food? When we do. We absolutely talk about the price of food, food insecurity, and the opportunity for doubling food production here in the province and up and down that line. The question is, you know, when government has attempted to ease the worries and the burdens that so many people feel, whether it be the old, the, the notorious $500 check and uh, rebates and oil rebates and monies to switch and all, like there's lots of money floating around. But what I'm trying to grapple with is understanding what government's role could be in the price of food because that one becomes a little bit more tricky you know there's some I see some people out there saying that you know for instance NDP leader Jagmeet Singh talking about it, and he says this all the time about windfall taxes right so Loblaws reported a 300 pardon me a 529 million dollar fourth quarter profit last year so yeah there's money being made their profit margins are not huge but how do you get government involved in the price of food if it comes down to picking winners and losers, which they've attempted to do with that sugar tax, and who knows if that's even working or is making any dent in people's choices uh, when they go into a store, but what do they? How do they intervene here? So there's some comments is that we've got to include more Canadian production being kept in the country as opposed for export. But then, of course, there's a massive difference between the large-scale retailer and then some of the smaller grocery operations. Where the complications become a problem there is that so many of the big retailers, they carry a big stick and have a big contractual relationship with distributors. And, of course, consequently, and some of them even know some of the distribution chains. So they really do rule the roost. If they want a certain quantity of one product or another, the big ones are going to get it because no distributor is going to want to jeopardize their relationship with the big retailer. So what does government actually do to intervene here? I honestly don't know the answer. So that's one place, you know, when we talk about prices of fuels and whatnot, the government does have some uh, wiggle room available. So number one could be inside of taxation. And so, like, the federal excise tax of 10 cents a litre hasn't changed since the date was implemented. Provinces have their own tax on fuels, and then, of course, it's the carbon tax implication. So governments can do something. And remember, the government... Here in this province cut the gas tax in half some while back while it was completely out of control with the price of fuel. So yeah, we have things governments can do on some of these fronts. And even if we talk about some of the other big drivers here, energy and housing government can indeed do things like they've imposed some restrictions on foreign ownership and what have you. But I really don't know what they can do inside the price of food. But that's one area where we all share the the same or the common concern. We all need to eat. And going to the grocery store now is cringeworthy. It is just so expensive. And that's every single thing in the grocery store is more expensive today than it was pre-pandemic. And there's lots of reasons why. And it's not just, you know, people will always lean back on the grocery store gouge, even though their profit margins are pretty slim, but their profits are huge. Loblaws are making huge money. And you know, even things like being debated as a price freeze. Folks who are so-called experts in the agri-food business, they say that that's not necessarily a solution either, but for the emailer, and I did respond to that, you know, Sometimes if you don't get enough of one topic or another or something doesn't get broached at all, all you have to do is call. We'll get you in the queue, talk about whatever you want to talk about. But we do talk about food and we talk about it a lot. And, you know, to extend that for the food security issue, food security is a different conversation uh, depending on in particular where you are in the province because proximity to a place to shop with more and more options may be a potentially better price point that does boil down to how close you are to one larger centre or another and then I'll keep continuing uh, continue to bang this drum is if we don't embrace the new technology available like hydroponics then we are missing a significant contributing factor to easing that burden about where the food comes from If you've got large community gardens and backyard farming and homesteading and, yes, traditional farming, but the more and more uh, focus on hydroponics, we can produce an awful lot of food closer to where you are. And I don't know why we haven't seen or heard from government really going after that one particular issue. There is hydroponic farming going on here in the province. And those folks, there are some significant upfront costs. And they are trying to scale up. So I don't know why we don't talk about that at the government level a little bit more. But yes, to the emailer, food is a conversation we're happy to have, and we always do. Let's go to line number one. Rod, you're on the air.
12: Hi, Patty. How are you? It's been a while. Been a while. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, my friend. Patty, you know, I was listening to the news earlier about uh, our health officials going now to the U.K. searching for doctors. And I just want to talk about something that I'm aware of, and, I'm, and I know to be true. And here in, this, here in St. John's right now, uh, we have a lady who uh, is a colleague of Tina's, uh, a nurse, who has an MD and is being, has been refused for the last three or four years to be given a residency. She wants to practice as an MD here in the St. John's area, but is being refused uh, a residency. And the answers that she's getting are basically nothing. Uh, I'm also aware of a physician here in St. John's who has three sons. One is an MD here with him right now in this this town. His other two sons just did their uh, medical degrees uh, in the south somewhere and were refused residencies here and have both accepted uh, residencies now down the states. They're not married. They don't have girlfriends. So what do you think is going to happen? They're going to go down to Boston somewhere, meet somebody, have a family and stay. We actually have uh, tr- uh, uh, young men and women trained, you know, graduated with their medical d- degrees, willing to come here and work in Newfoundland, and we're not letting them work here because we they, we won't give them a residency. Yet we'll go to Ireland, India, and the UK looking for doctors when well, we've got them right here. Like, what what is going on? Like, and, and I know that the health departments are well aware of this, and if they tell you they're not have them call me. I'll give them the names of the people. Okay, so being refused
0: residency, is this one of the issues where this person was uh, educated outside the country? Yes. Okay, because there's lots of that going on, and that basically boils back to the control that not only the college may have, but what the med schools have. There's only 17 medical schools in the country. And, of course, they want to prioritize their graduates for residence positions. But I think if I remember correctly, reading that news story, there's only something like 9% of Canadian doctors trained abroad were able to find a residency. So that is absolute nonsense. If we have someone who's gone to an accredited med school, we're not talking about getting your medical degree online for some fly-by-night organization. But if you went to Trinity College ireland or you were went to the university of brisbane or sydney i mean that medical training is very much akin to the training you get in this country we have to be careful on that front but we can't pretend that simply because you didn't go to a canadian med school we're going to make your life difficult because people need doctors the provinces need doctors that's one of the hurdles that makes no sense
12: it's it's unbelievable that we are not addressing that problem and if if and there's lots of doctors, from what I understand, are prepared to take and train these young and these young up and doctors. So, you know, it's, again, once again being controlled by the med school. They've only got so many seats. They allow. So, you know, make the med school bigger, double it, triple it, quadruple it, whatever it takes, if that's what it takes, or start friggin' letting some of these people back in here and go to work. We've got, a, we've got a, an MD right now, trained as an MD, who actually has a nurse practitioner and they're, and they're making her work as a nurse. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's beyond foolishness. Right? And two more, whose father and brother are here practicing, are down in the Boston area right now. And we've lost them, though. You guarantee you they're not coming back. And they're prepared to go anywhere. They would have went to Labrador. And so this is what we're dealing with.
0: Yeah, that residency issue, that's something that we can indeed deal with. I mean, there's bureaucratic uh, approaches that can change. It's just, I, I don't understand that one whatsoever, because well-trained healthcare professionals should be able to work as well-trained healthcare professionals here in this province. You know, even look any further here. So, Eastern Health has uh, gone ahead and funded four new healthcare positions in Bonavista. Two doctors and two nurse practitioners. That's all fine. It's just like building something. You can build a facility, but if you haven't got the staff, then what's the facility for? You can improve funding, but if you can't attract that healthcare professional, then the funding's not making much of a difference. So, the, the whole world regarding healthcare, look, this People like to pretend that this just happened overnight, but it's simply not the case. This has been brewing and growing as a problem for years. Certainly ever since I've been in this chair, this has been a concern that was, has been on the front burner. But here we are at the 11th hour, and now we've got all these suite of uh, attractive uh, bonuses and incentives for people to, whether it be go from a casual nurse to a permanent full-time nurse or to come and work in this province. But... You know, what I thought was some of the programs that sounded like they made sense, sounded like they were going to have some uh, positive outcomes. And then, lo and behold, we went from 125,000 people without a family doctor to 136,000, even with all of these things in place. And then last year, apparently, we, we had a net loss of seven family doctors here in the province.
12: So something's not working. And, you know, the net loss is probably larger because a lot of those doctors are not practicing in, in clinics. They're, they're doing research. They're doing other things. I mean, it's, it's smoke and mirrors, and we need to. that needs to be addressed. Uh, this government needs to make a decision to do something about this that's actually concrete. And you, you're right, Patty, this has been going on, <clears throat> not from this government, the previous one. It's been going on for the last, last 30 or 40 years. They predicted this back in the 80s, and nothing has been done about it.
0: Certainly not enough has been done. Uh, and yes, you're right, the number of lo- new licenses. So I think the numbers are, there was 122 doctors left and there was 115 new licenses granted. But th- they were quite clear in this news story is that many of those newly uh, minted doctors are choosing to work at walking clinics or to do locums yeah. and not to have a full patient roster. So that doesn't necessarily solve much either because the fact is there are more doctors in this province than ever before. But we still have more and more people waiting longer and longer, and even without access to, for instance, a general practitioner or a family doctor. So the numbers are a bit misleading. I uh, appreciate the time, Rod. Anything else you want to
12: add? Uh, you know, I'm just going to throw one more thing out there. This one, this has been burning me for a while, uh, and I'll make this really quick. No problem. A, a, a really good friend of mine is an MD here in town, and uh, we get together quite regularly. He does home visits. <laughs> His home visits are visiting people 85 and plus he's keeping them out of the hospital every time he visits one of those uh, patients and he works till 10 o'clock four and five nights a week doing this to keep these patients healthy every time he submits a bill for that's an extra he gets an extra 15 or 17 dollars or something the crowd in Grand falls some clerk in Grand falls flags it because he's not allowed they think he's cheating the system you can't possibly be doing as many uh, home visits in the evenings as you say you are And they they make him go through these huge audits, which is slowing him down again. He's so peeved off about this. But he said to me, he said, he said, Rod, you know, he said, my oldest wants to be an MD, so he's going to train here. Right? He said, my wife is a mental health nurse, which is right. He said, you know what's going to happen? We're going to move to Nova Scotia or New Brunswick somewhere. Yeah, they'll train my son here, and then he's going to chase me. So this is the kind of stuff that's going on as well that needs to be addressed. And I'll leave it there, Pat.
0: Appreciate your time, Rod. Thank you
12: thanks buddy you have a
0: good time you too bye 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 bye. you know and then look uh, up front I get it virtual care is not the be all and end all for everybody or or every ailment that's true but for some it absolutely could be a solution to their woes whether it be how close the closest doctor might be and or the inability to get a doctor the problem inside virtual care is it seems like they want it both ways is that Virtual care as your only role is not enough to satisfy the college for your accreditation and your license. But we're talking about more and more of virtual care being offered. The government has gone to the market with an RFP for a virtual care contract, but at the exact same time, there's a cap on the number of patients a doctor can see per day. So if a doctor chooses to work whatever extended a number of hours and see whatever number of patients in the course of a day what is the cap remain at 40 if a doctor figures out well maybe i can see 50 today but we're not allowing them to do it we're certainly we're not allowing them to do it and bill mcp some people some doctors are maybe taking on a couple of extra virtual care appointments on their own time their own dime as they say so that cap isn't really all that sensible either. Even when we ask the minister responsible as to why a certain cap is in place, virtual care in uh, in particular, not really sure that we get much of a better understanding based on what comes back. So I understand there might be some cap issues, and they're addressing a cap issue regarding cardiac procedures on the province's west coast, but if we have people waiting, and we have a way to help them and to treat them, then why aren't we maximizing all of those things? Uh, Let's take a final break in the morning. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. So... uh Again, sometimes we revisit different issues because they seem to be latching on to many people's attention and asking further questions on it. So, one, and this is all based on what we heard from Jim Hines, who, of course, is the gentleman who funded the equine therapy program, did a lot of improvements for the canine unit. And yes, and did procure and cover all expenses regarding bringing the Portuguese water dog Stella to town for mental health supports. So we have heard from the RNC chief, Patrick Roach, about how and why things have changed. I'm not so sure we have a real better understanding as to the big uh, question of why they've changed. So. He says the transition into Stella being more utilized inside the rank and file of the RNC versus the community work that Christoph Hagen and Stella did over the years. So I brought it up again off the top of the program this morning, because it's not just a standalone issue, is it? You know, whether it be organizations like the RNC or the RCMP or other branches or arms of government, you know, a focus on and programs associated with mental health are going to be critically important. You know, we do indeed broach that conversation as often as we can on the show, and we're always open to more of these types of conversations because, you know, just think about it. It's not that long ago that the numbers we were using, when we talked about the numbers of people, the numbers of Canadians uh, impacted with mental illness and or conversation about their mental well-being and mental health, it was one of five Canadians had a mental illness or were battling with their mental health, I guess is a better way to put it. That number that's being used all the time now is one in four. So things have changed very, very quickly. So whatever organization, especially when we're talking about the government, now inside your own private employers uh, organization, your focus on mental health and some programs and supports being put forward by your private employer, of course really important. But on the government level, any program that was in place, and I would suggest there's more and more needs to be done on that front, period, you know, these arm's length organizations to withdraw the services of Stella, even, you know, maybe a reduction in the schedule for Stella and Krista to be out in the community. But every single request over the course of a six month period was denied. So I'm sure there's many members of the RNC that are absolutely availing of and benefiting from, you know, access to Stella, but Every single person, every single entity or community group that has requested an appearance has been denied. So something changed quicker than not. So there's got to be a better understanding of the rationale. We have indeed requested uh, Chief Roach on this program to come on this program for an interview. And, of course, there's many things that we should be talking about when we talk about that law enforcement agency. But that one is absolutely at the top of it. And so if you want to add your two cents on that front, we should absolutely do it. You know, then we go ahead with the approach to the mental health delivery system we know and the construction is well underway over at the health sciences complex with the new mental health and addictions facility yes there's still concerns about where they chose to build it even if it is in an effort to have mental health and overall physical health you know in the same area in the same conversation in the same breath you know does just a new building doesn't mean we are going to positively change the way mental health services are offered and to reduce wait time or uh, access to long-term mental health care? And then there were some concerns initially with the way that the emergency department was going to be uh, set up and structured. So... So I think some of those were alleviated with the emergency room concern. Once there was more details coming from the regional health authority about there will be a formal separation, and if you don't want to be out in the general waiting room, you do not have to, and you will see a mental health nurse to be triaged. So there's going to be some separations for those who need it. So all of those types of conversations, again, I think we've got to have a keen focus on not just a new, modern, Warm, clean surroundings or settings for mental health services and addiction services, but there's got to be a change in the way those services are offered. Then, consequently, you know, we, we look at some of these mental health issues, and sometimes it boils back down to things like the numbers of psychiatrists and the wait list for psychiatrists. We can absolutely add to that conversation the issue coming from the association representing the province's psychologists. That problem is not only about the numbers of and whether or not they're working in the public sector uh, and or moving into a private offering, but what that means for the incoming class of graduating psychologists and access to the additional mentorship and training that they need to be full-on practicing inside of that discipline. So that number becomes extremely complicated. Maybe it's time to touch base with Dr. Hubbard again, Dr. Janine Hubbard, who's very generous with her time very helpful to help us better understand what the current situation looks like and what that means and the complications for those who are entering the ranks as a psychologist here in the province. Let's have a quick check-in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at Oh, and it became a one-day story, and unfortunately so, and this is regarding the most recent report coming from the Auditor General, Denise Hanrahan. So we heard the stories about her evaluation, what was going on at Nalcor, and the rate of pay being afforded to their executives versus comparable jobs outside of Nalcor, and some of the bonuses, things which thankfully have gone by the wayside. But this most recent report looks at a variety of different areas, and the real theme coming from it is the fraudulent behavior of so many. So whether it be a town that has gone unnamed, that submitted fraudulent invoices and proof of payment to avail of potentially up to $150,000 which was scheduled to repair community buildings or uh, repair or do install some walking trails or what have you. No work was ever done. The money's been returned. But we don't know if there was any head that rolled on that front. Then it was people who were using government credit cards for their own personal issues. And people who were trying to cash the same check more than once. And uh, a, dep- a former deputy Minister who was involved in his own hiring. Then there was a story of someone who was on sick leave from one uh, department working in another. You know, we can't let those stories just become a one-day affair because government has indeed, and I think it's been acknowledged by the Auditor General, has put some protections in place regarding fraudulent behavior of a department or an individual. But we've got to stay on top of it. What we don't hear often enough is that someone actually paid a serious price, like, for instance, losing your job. If that was the next day headline, then, of course, that would really dissuade people from uh, wanting to use their personal—pardon me, their government credit card for their own personal affairs. So the consequences don't really seem to match up with the behavior. All right, good show today. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning we right are here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.